0: Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts Tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hello again, Blockhead listeners. Welcome to a new episode. Today's guest is a name you may not know, but if you are a newspaper comics fan of long standing, his work is something you have certainly seen. Henrik Rare was cartoonist behind Ferdinand for about 18 years from, I guess, the early 1990s until 2006, 2007, somewhere in there. And he's also worked on Beetle Bailey for the Scandinavian market, and his work you may have Seen in one way or the other he does a beautiful beetle bailey although he's very modest about it but uh, if you listen to my episode with uh, my interview with brian walker some time ago you know that beetle bailey is really popular in scandinavia and there was a beetle bailey magazine that ran for many years and henrik did a lot of work primarily for that magazine who knows it may have shown up here in one form or another uh, anyway he, he he channels mort walker beautifully and um his Ferdinand's beautiful also, too. And uh, so, so you know his work through there. But Henrik is also uh, a graphic novelist whose work is really quite beautiful and quite powerful in a very different style, very much more illustrative, naturalistic style. Uh, so his work ca- is, is quite broad in its uh, capabilities, his, his style. And among the books that he's done, which are primarily for the French European market... Uh, a book about the the assassin of Archduke Ferdinand. Uh, it's called um, Terrorist Gavrilo Princip, uh, the, the, the assassin who ignited World War I. Uh, he's done books on Tolstoy. Uh, he's got a book on Dostoevsky coming out. These are graphic biographies, all of which, you know, if you look at his Instagram feed, Henrik Kim Rare is the, is the feed, at Henrik Kim Rare, spelled H-E-N-R-I-K-K, i am r-e-h-r it'll be in the notes for the show be sure to check it out because it's a delight it really is uh, to see his work every day it's it's so versatile and virtuoistic. he's such a great artist and uh, you won't be disappointed there henrik rare came to my attention about 10 years ago when uh, kevin much alex Rader, and i got together to publish an anthology newspaper of alternative comics called Pood, and that lasted for four issues. It was a, a large broadsheet newspaper in the old style, Golden Age style. It was 17 inches by 24 when it was unfolded, so it was really big. Each artist had a full page to work on, and uh, we really enjoyed putting that together. Unfortunately, it didn't last too long, as I said, four issues, but Henrik was with us for all four issues, I think, and his work was just a tour de force of great graphic illustration and and really powerful and great stuff. And so I've been a fan of his ever since. So Henrik is here to talk about his career in, in comics, also to talk a little bit about European comics, which we haven't had the chance to talk about too much here on this show. And I really want to get into more because so much great stuff comes uh, has come out of Europe. And really, uh, you know, we just don't get the chance to talk about it very much, but we do talk about it today. And, and in the notes you'll find uh, a couple of artists' names, uh, cartoonist whose work Henrik brings up, and um, we want to send you to, so look for that, okay? Uh, before I, I get to the interview, I just want to say thank you to all of you who contributed to my Kickstarter campaign. We were successful, again, with Green Screen Number 2. It's always kind of like nerve-wracking enterprise to do a Kickstarter, and uh, for the longest while, I wasn't sure it was going to Make its modest goal, but it did, and so I thank you to those of, of you who contributed. And your books are, and rewards are on their way to you. And I hope you enjoyed them. So, let's get right to it, then, uh, Henrik, Rare, and myself, in conversation. Yeah. So, wow, it's been so long, and it um, has
1: actually.
0: Yeah, it's. Been, can you believe it's been over? I guess, 10, 11 years since Pood came out?
1: Yeah, I'm afraid I can't, but it is unbelievable. I know. It's
0: just, you know, what's the the word? It just continues to gather speed and momentum, you know? It's like
1: yeah,
0: 10 years now seems like, you know, what, a year and a half ago, not even.
1: I know, but I think it's also because we're getting older, you know? So we don't have these major life-changing events anymore. Ah
0: yeah 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 um, you're you right. know a
1: year when you're from your seven to eight so much happens in your life in that year right but
0: oh my the, gosh yeah yeah
1: from your 52 to 53 maybe not so much i think <laughs> I could also have something to do with that
0: well gosh you know by now i think uh, i'm 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 getting personal here while i'm recording but it's uh, i suppose it's okay if it's all right with you but yeah, um, sure. your kids must be grown by now
1: yeah they're young men 22 and 25
0: oh my gosh that's uh, it's unbelievable. And what are they doing?
1: Well, one of them, he just finished college. The little one, the big one, he's working. He's in, I guess, technically he's in finance.
0: Ah, huh? okay. Lucky you. He's somebody to take care of you in your retirement.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's making good money. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's,
0: don't go into cartooning. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, it paid for his college, so it can't be that bad. Yeah, no, no. I mean. No, but, I mean, you know, it's good. The little one studied graphic design, which is more related. But yeah. I don't mind that they're not cartoonists, actually. That's fine. Let them do something where yeah. I'm not looking over their shoulder.
0: Yeah, you, they've got to find their own way, right? Exactly. It's, it, they're, you know, they're their own people, just as you and I were. Yeah. Wow, geez. And and are you still located in the same place? In, in Yeah, uh, yeah. Cl- mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're in Battery Park City, you know, basically yeah. down by where the World Trade Center used to stand. So, yeah. We yeah. never really got
0: out of here. No, and 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 you know, in in part, I mean, your books, um, uh, Tribeca Sunset, and the other na- title escapes me at the moment. Um, that's fine. It's
1: called Tuesday. But
0: yeah, Tuesday. That's right. Yeah. Um. I mean, you did. Was it a Tuesday? Wow. Um. Yeah. You 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 did a couple of books based on your experience of nine eleven when, when you were there, which were you know, uh, I read Tribeca Sunset, which was very powerful, and. Thank you. Um, yeah, beautifully illustrated too. Oh my gosh, uh, and and you you had how long were you in uh, Tribeca um, or Battery Park City uh, when nine eleven happened? How, how long wasn't long after you moved there, wasn't it?
1: Let's see, we moved in in ninety seven, so we were here almost four years before it happened. But you know, we oh. always knew it was a, a terror target because there was that attack in ninety three. Yes, they tried to blow up, well, they did blow up a car down in the garage. But yes. so
0: much recall happened. That. But yeah. 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 So so what you know, uh, I mean, we're going to get into all aspects of your career, which is a rich and varied one. And and I am recording now. So I'm speaking not only to you, but I'm speaking to an audience who no, may not be familiar with your work. But it, it it is an extraordinarily rich body of work that you've created over the past 40 years and and you know among those those works that you've done uh you did some very powerful memoirs about your experience of 9-11 and that that's what in part brings me to sure. this topic Thanks. because it's you, you know you moved there uh and, and four years later this happened and of course you were aware of it well what what was it that brought you to the united states to begin with because you're you're not from the united states no
1: obviously. no i i grew up in denmark um so, uh, well, it was basically the usual story. Uh, a woman in New York City. Um, <laughs> uh, no, nothing particular interesting there.
0: Really. Oh, I don't but, know. Uh, <laughs> a woman in New York City, to me, that sounds like the beginning of a great book.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it was the beginning of a great 30 years. So, yeah. can't be that bad.
0: No, no, not at all. Um, so, so, your wife is from New York or from the... Uh,
1: no, no. She's, she was born in Korea, actually. But oh, okay. her family immigrated to Canada when she was seven. So she grew up in Canada, but she went to school in New York City. Oh, okay. So when oh, I bumped into her, she was here. She went to FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, and, and became a fashion designer.
0: Oh, wow. So you're both in the arts. That's terrific. Wow. That's really interesting. I mean, my wife and I are kind of in similar, although she didn't go to school for it um she's a uh she's a, a fiber artist so sure. she, she does a lot of fiber work and a lot of her own designs as well so yeah. i'm familiar with with a house full of fabric and fiber <laughs>
1: <laughs> well actually we never had that much fabric in the house you know she worked for for um, fashion companies on 7th mm-hmm. avenue so mm-hmm. they did it all at the office sure sure yeah, we had a sewing machine for a while but not much happened with it i noticed
0: My wife has kind of turned away from the sewing machine. It was hurting her back after a while, and uh, it it got to be. She was. It's a long story, and I won't go into it. But anyway, she's her interests have turned into other aspects of fiber, which is kind of interesting to watch. It's yeah. It's uh. But but anyway, so so you well, you know, the question that rises in my mind is, you know, you've been in the United States so long now. Do you ever regret the move? I mean, given what we've gone through politically and socially in the last few years, I mean, did you ever kind of, you know, our mutual friend Kevin picked up and left uh, yeah, and true. Went to Canada, which of course was his home. But, um, you know, did you ever think to yourself, oh, gosh, we've got to get out of here? No. Not
1: really. No, I mean, I lived in Canada for two years too, not too far from where Kevin is in Hamilton. I lived in Toronto for two years actually in the Mm nineties, and um, and Canada is a very well-functioning society, I must say. Mm -hmm. Of the three I lived in, Denmark, the US, and Canada, might be the one that works the best for its citizens, I think.
0: Really? How interesting.
1: Yeah, but it's also where I lived the shortest. I was only there two years, right? Yeah. So it's. Um, I mean, you know. Denmark is in Scandinavia and and we have this social democratic model and everybody can't be taken care of if they can't um, really handle themselves and all that. And that's great. I mean, the social security net there is fantastic. Sure. But but there's a lot of things that you don't really notice from the outside, but that you notice if you live there. I mean, there's Mm. a a pretty healthy racism in Denmark, for instance. Uh, Mm
2: hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh,
1: It's it's not something... uh, that is spoken about a lot, but it's just there and and you can see it in the elections too. I mean, um, the right-wing parties who really don't like strangers, they get a lot of votes every time
0: yeah i've I've in reading about politics in Europe that has been a concerning yeah. you know, uh, yeah. aspect is and and of course, it's always been there, but it seems like in the last few years, oh, it's picked up steam and become started to move more into the mainstream, which is really quite yeah. quite concerning. That's,
1: it's concerning, but it's basically the same uh, development that's been in the U.S., I think. Oh, yeah. yeah so, exactly. so, I mean, sure, I could go back to Europe. I don't think there's going to be that big a difference when it comes to that aspect anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um,
1: and, I mean, you know, after 30 years, you yeah, become absolutely. this kind of hybrid, too, right? I'm, I'm not Danish anymore. I'm not quite American either. I am something in between. You're a New Yorker, man. Yeah, I, mean, I guess that, too. Although, I must say, especially in the winter here. California looks awfully uh, attractive.
0: <laughs> you know, the older we get, right? The, the older you get, California, Florida. I don't No, Florida, no, I don't think. Uh, that is one political It seems couldn't. to
1: be turning into a third world country down there these days.
0: Yeah, yeah, it really does. But but, uh, uh,
1: but California is still okay. Okay, there's a wildfire all the time. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, maybe we'll never manage to escape New York. But I must say, I after all these years, I still love living here.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's many things, you know, we lived in New York for many years, too. And my wife and I, we sort of ended up in upstate New York simply out of an accident, really. And um, we miss it. You know, we talk about it a lot. But at the same time, we're both in our 60s and it's kind of at a moment where it's like, well, at this point in our lives, we really like being able to step outside
1: and have the peace and quiet and whatnot. so maybe i think the older you get the harder it is to just take up your roots and move i think
0: yes it is it really is you get i
1: have two sons here right two kids and they're americans and they they don't really seem interested in leaving new york city and it's nice to be not too far from your kids and all that too yeah Yeah. who knows (laughs) if we'll ever get out of here
0: Right. Well, <laughs> as long as you're, you know, you're happy and, and things are good. It's good.
1: You know, New well, York. Well, I mean, you know, the city has changed. I, I came <laughs> here the first time in 91 and moved here in 92. Mm-hmm. And it was cheaper back then. And you could find neighborhoods where you could afford to live and yeah. you know, diners and restaurants that were really good deals. And yeah. they have disappeared, at least from Manhattan. Oh,
0: man. Yeah. It's it, We lived in Brooklyn and yeah. uh, we moved to- Brooklyn. In Park Slope initially, and then in yeah. Sunset Park. Yeah. Okay, sure,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, and in Park and I had a studio in Gowanus, um, sure. and which was great, and uh, it was it was fabulous, absolutely fabulous. But when we first moved to Park Slope, I was going to grad school, and we could afford to live in Park Slope. Yeah, um, you know, in a one bedroom place uh, on my wife's salary alone, and uh, whatever I could scrape by, you know, uh, along the way, and. Mm. You know we did it we did okay and it wasn't you know intolerable financially and uh, and of course as years went on of course you know rents just keep going up and everything and it became more and more like manhattan moved more and more into those areas of brooklyn and as manhattan moved out everything just you know skyrocketed in terms yeah. of cost and you also began to lose some of the you know i mean some of the quality of the neighborhood prior to you know all of the the gentrification kind of
1: thing and um i mean okay so i have i've brought up two kids here of course right and we live in battery park city which is a very you know there's not really much of a new york atmosphere here so to speak i Mm -hmm. mean it's it's known as suburbia in the city But it has been great for bringing up kids, I must say. You know, I mean, they could go. There's the baseball field is right here, a block and a half from where we live. They could walk over there on their own when they were playing baseball or soccer or... Yeah. And, you know, Ray Kelly, the former police commissioner, he lives in the same apartment complex we live in. And oh. <laughs> there's for, there's never really any crime here for some reason. I don't know. Well, maybe financial crime. I can see the Amex tower from where I'm sitting here looking <laughs> out of the window. But, you know, street crime, not really.
0: Yeah, so a lot It's of extremely problems.
1: safe to live here, which has been great for bringing up kids, of course, and having a family.
0: Well, you know, I always found, um, and, and it's true, I always found that I never felt threatened or, or concerned when we lived in New York. And, of course, the time we lived there, crime rates started to go down and plummeted, mm. right? And they stayed that way pretty much. And and the city always felt, and this is contrary to, you know, public opinion around, you know, if you listen to the mass media and stuff or, or yeah. whatever particularly right wing media there's always yeah. oh, this they paint these pictures of urban environments as being these crazy crime infested areas and the reality is quite different we always felt very safe where we were no matter what time of night it was you know i mean it, periodically you run up against you know my wife had been pickpocketed and on the subway and stuff yeah. you yeah. know i mean that happens yeah. for the most part you know the one thing i loved about living in new york was there was always this these new york moments where You know, whether it's a subway car or it's a neighborhood or whatnot, people come together uh, around a tragedy, around a difficulty if somebody's having a problem. You know, it's amazing. You know, up here, I hear gunfire off in the woods, you know, sometimes and and multiple shots one after another. And, you know, it gets a little concerning after a while because bullets are flying around indiscriminately. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know.
1: Uh, hunting or what? I thought there were a lot of hunting going on
0: up there. Yeah, there's there's a lot of hunting, but a lot of target practice too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, off in the woods, and people, there are kind of, um, you know, there are uh, zoning laws and whatnot, and you have to be a certain number of feet away from another residence in order to shoot your gun off. But the yeah. is where we live is fairly rural, and it's kind of like the Wild West in the sense that. Not a lot of enforcement happens. So people are free to kind of do what they do. And sometimes I saw a guy in my field one day, you know, aiming his gun, you know, at a target that was like, you know, in the direction of my house, you know, facing towards my kitchen. And my wife is in the kitchen. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? You know,
1: (laughs) well, lucky it was you because another guy might just have gotten his own gun out.
0: Yeah, right. I know.
1: Anyway, I mean, when I came in 92, I lived on 106th Street and it was Mm -hmm. it was pretty gritty back then. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, there were 107 was a bit of a coke block and there was a lot of drugs. And so so you had to be kind of aware of where you were and, Mm -hmm. you know, but yeah. I usually say, you know, there's 20 million people in and around New York and we don't kill each other all the time every day.
0: And it's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it is amazing. And, and uh, you know, it, it, when you think about it from that point of view. But I loved it. I loved living there and uh, wouldn't have traded it for the world. So what a great experience.
1: Anyway, now, New, New Yorkers also have this reputation of being rude, but they're not really rude. They're actually very friendly, I think. Yeah, I think they, so. too. They just have they have no patience.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, no, no patience. It's like, get it done now. And people are always in a hurry, but, but, you know, rudeness, nah, you know, I mean, there's a kind of reality thing, you know, there's like the sense of shared experience there. And, and, um, you know, we all, when you're in New York and you live there, it's like, you all understand that aspect. (laughs) We're all living here. We're all under the gun. You know, there's a lot of pressure to get to work and the subways don't always run on time. And, Whatever the you know the hell, but uh, um, but it, there's a kind of shared commonality.
1: That, and I think you also just have to be somewhat polite because otherwise it simply can't work. Yeah, you know I, mean? I mean you can't you can't share a subway car with 200 other people and yeah. everybody gets claustrophobia. It's just yeah. not available.
0: It's not you exactly right. Yeah. So so you came sure. to New York, you know, for a variety of different reasons, and but by then. You were already, you know, your career was already well underway. Um, I mean, you had yeah. had um, established yourself in Denmark as a cartoonist working, well, to begin with, on Ferdinand of all things, right?
1: Yeah, not not to begin with actually, but but okay. it was great to do Ferdinand. I I took that over. I think January first eighty nine maybe, uh, mm-hmm. but I had done other things before that. Um, but it was great that I was doing Ferdinand because I could just take that with me basically and instead of sit there in copenhagen and draw the strips i did them over here so that made it very easy to move right i didn't have to come and find a job or whatever i basically brought the job with me
0: yeah incredible and and were you working i mean my gosh you weren't working digitally then no
1: no no for for many years i basically sent the original artwork back to copenhagen it was but well they scanned it then and then they sent it to United Media in New York, which was, <laughs> it was a really stupid traffic. And then uh, at one point I had lunch, I remember, with Amy Laco, who was the Ferdinand editor um, at United Media
2: mm-hmm. the, the
1: distribution over here. And she said, is there any way you can give us the strips first? Because I get the winter strips in the summer. And, you know, oh, my God. Yeah, the fall strips in the spring and all that. And, and that was much easier for me, too. So, after a couple of years in New York, I just dropped them off up there on, I think they were on 33rd Street or something.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they sent them off to, to Copenhagen? Yeah. Okay, from there. So, so you when you took over Ferdinand, you weren't just taking it over for the Danish market. You were taking it over for the entire, for the yeah. United States, for the entire probably- world.
1: I can quickly sketch up the story of the strip. It was started in 1937 by a Dane called Henning Dan Mikkelsen. He's the one who signs it, Mick, M-I-K. Oh, okay. And um, and it ran for about 10 years before it became really successful. So it was basically running in Denmark and I think some British papers. And suddenly it broke through in the U.S. and became quite big. It, it, um, to people who don't know the strip, it's a silent strip. So there's right. no translation problems. They're all just little pantomime situations. Um, and when, so so Mick, he moved to LA. His his big dream was to become an animator at Disney. Okay. Um, while he was doing Ferdinand in Denmark, he actually also did animation work for advertising and stuff, but he really wanted to be uh, an animator at Disney. And it never worked out for him, but he did live in LA for the rest of his life up in the Hollywood Hills. hmm and, uh, I mean, you know, doing a daily strip is a bit of a workload and I don't, I think he soured a bit on it too. So he started hiring a lot of assistants. Okay. I don't even know the names of a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And at some point he retired and Al Plastino, who used to draw oh, superheroes. He, sure. Uh, yeah. He drew Superman, I think for a while.
0: Oh, a long time.
1: Yeah. He took it over. He was a mix assistant at that point And he then took over the strip and ran it for, I can't remember. Maybe 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the the number of years. But uh, then he retired, and then they sat over there in Copenhagen and thought, okay, we're gonna need a new artist. Maybe we find a young Danish artist right. instead of having to deal with somebody over in America, because because Mick was Danish and started the strip in Denmark. The distribution company, the syndicate, was in Copenhagen. How how interesting. Yeah. They knew me because they were selling another strip that I did with a friend of mine who wrote it uh, to a Danish newspaper. Oh, I And see. they thought, okay, you know what? He seems to be reasonable to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, let's try him. So <laughs>
0: Yeah.
1: And um, and I did the Ferdinand for 18 years then.
0: Wow, man. So so 18, did you write and draw the strip?
1: Um, I wrote some of them, Pia, um, the editor wrote some of them and then to be honest, we stole some from the 30s and 40s too, oh. from, the, from the exact strip. Yeah. I mean nobody And redrew could remember them. them. Yeah. Oh, wow. And yeah. I redrew them. And, you know, you had to basically redraw the whole thing. But yeah. uh, the characters had changed and the cars and everything. But it was fine. I mean, there was also what there was a budget for, so to speak, especially towards the end. Because after a while, it lost papers. And, you know, the strip was like 70 years old when it closed, I think, or thereabouts. So, yeah, there was just... <laughs>
0: Oh, I'm sorry. When did it it close and when did it end?
1: Yeah, let me see. I think it was 2006. Yeah, 2006. And then then they did uh, archival strips for a while, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I didn't produce them. Right. They were just the old ones. They reprinted. I think that might have run for another eight years or so. I'm not quite sure.
0: Wow, that's amazing. You know, I I mean, it really is something. Ferdinand was a strip that was a staple uh, when I was growing up in our local newspapers. I know it quite well. And for kids, it was always a great jumping on point with comics because obviously it's a silent pantomime strip. But, you know, there must have been I mean, it must have been a real. And I have to tell you before I'm getting a. Uh, away from myself here. Um, I I actually, in in a teaching moment in in one of my comics classes, I actually use Ferdinand as a strip for uh, students to play around with. Uh, Because, you know, in order to do a pantomime strip, you have to you, your storytelling elements all have to be very clear and yeah. very, you know, succinct, particularly in something like Ferdinand. It's in a newspaper. It's limited number of panels, blah, 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 yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And so it's a real challenge, you know, in order to to tell a story and to tell it well, to tell it clearly. And um, Ferdinand is a great example that, over so many years of of really, you know, how to tell these short little vignettes uh in a very clear succinct way you know and um it must but, have you know, been yes.
1: i mean that's the job you know yeah. That's the job right i, mean, I always thought doing a data strip foremost requires precision mm. because you really don't have much space yeah so okay right. Ferdinand was was silent but even if you have text i mean you can't be verbose right there's not going to be no room for the pictures and all that you really need precision and in that sense, it's a very, very good school, I think, for a cartoonist.
0: Oh, I think so too. And, uh, you know, it, it really is a good place to start. And um, and Ferdinand was always very charming. I mean, you know, it was, it was always yeah.
1: a true. No, I mean, I think Mick did a fantastic job creating it, actually. I ba- he basically built the bicycle. I just rode on it for a while.
0: <laughs> and, and during his years, it, it was successful enough that he had a home in the Hollywood Hills. I mean, it was in a yeah. lot of papers. Uh, for a long time. No, uh, it really
1: was. I mean, I, I even when I took it over, uh, the sun never sat on Ferdinand, he said, because it was always <laughs> running somewhere. Right. You know, it was then it was in a Japanese paper. Then it was in a Saudi Arabian paper. Then it was in a paper in Peru. So there was always it was always somewhere.
0: Yeah. And and, you know, easily translatable.
1: But yeah, exactly.
0: Did, did you find it challenging, um, you know, to come up with, I mean, every day to come up with another visual gag?
1: Well, the thing is, I mean, I the thing about doing a daily strip is that you feel like Sisyphus, that Greek guy who rolls the rock up the hill and as soon as it comes to the top, it rolls down again, right? Yeah. I mean, you hand in your three or four weeks of strips, whatever your schedule is. And damn it, they printed right away. And you got to get to wing. I mean, I've done a lot of books too, right? And and you do a book and it's done. Right. And and right now I'm in between books, for instance, I could take it a little easy for a while. I can write something, I can draw something. I can maybe take a day off and go to the med if that's what I feel like. But on a daily strip, it's it rears its ugly head right again. And so, I mean, so after 18 years, I didn't mind so much getting a breather from it, I must admit. Yeah. But, yeah. So it is relentless, so to speak, but of course you also, you get used to it. It's a certain way of thinking, you know, you always have a notebook around, you write your ideas down. I usually thought that if you come in, if you have to make 24 strips and you come in with 12 decent ideas, mm-hmm. the other 12 show up when you do the first 12. They, they just come into your mind, you can even, especially with a silent strip, you can just sit down and doodle. Yeah. And suddenly something happens. Oh, yeah. And you, then you can do this and then you can do that. <laughs> because there's also things you can get away with in a silent strip um, because it, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be ha ha, laugh out loud, funny. Wow. It could just be charming and people are happy. So, sure. So it's I, I thought. Coming up with it was not. It was not easy. But it was not that hard either. And then again, I had help from my editor Pierre who also wrote a lot of them.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, you, so it wasn't. You weren't entirely on your own if you got stuck. Yeah. yeah. So that that
1: that but, was. But a, I've, a I've great. never gotten stuck. Just to tell you the truth, I think the the, the the hard part is not to get ideas. The hard part is actually to figure out which ones are good and which ones are bad. Uh, yes. That's okay. I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. After a while, because you you you've done so many of them. Exactly. You begin to, you know, it gets a little foggy because you've done so many. And,
1: and <laughs> no, that's not it. It's just what you think is funny. Other people might not think is funny. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, That happens to me all the time. <laughs> yeah, And it's very difficult to discern, I think, because you happen to think it's funny. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think the successful ones, the really successful cartoonists are the ones who are somehow on the same wavelength as the general public. Yeah, That what they like, they like. You know, yeah. what the cartoonists like, the public likes. Yeah, I, I always feel this is, I don't really know what people want, and I don't really know what people like.
0: You know, that's a really interesting point, and, and I think it does point to what the success of particularly... A cartoonist who's working in newspaper comics or in the mm. mainstream media of some kind being able to tap into whatever you know you want to you might call it the cultural zeitgeist or the culture attitude of a of a period for example you know i'm always talking about charles schultz and peanuts obviously yeah. and there's something about what happened after world war ii in the west in the united states in particular the attitudes after world war ii there was you know a growing a growing sense of anxiety during the Cold War, a growing sense of unease with material wealth and things of that nature. It caused people to sort of look inward. You could sense it in the media at the time, not only in Schultz's work, but you see it around, in, you know, you see it in, in oh, you know, even in Jack Kerouac. And you see it in, yeah. in Allen Ginsberg. You see it in the under, all of that kind of stuff that's percolating underneath, you know, in the 50s and then into the 60s that comes out really in the, in, in the forefront in the 60s. Yeah. And that's all, it, Schultz tapped into that and it enabled, he had the right psyche, the right mindset, the right ability, you know, to convey, I think through his work, the anxiety of of a large swath of the population, unspoken anxiety, you know, because on the surface, there was this great sense of self-satisfaction in the United States after World War II.
1: Sure. And all I've, I've, I've and that. but, but uh, see, I'm always wondering yes, yeah. if, if if the successful ones can read the zeitgeist or if they just happen to have a sensibility that fits in.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it might not, of course, it's individual too. Some might be one, some might be the other. But but you know, if everybody could just sit down and calculate it, everybody would, right? There's something else. (laughs) There's something very intangible there that could either have to do with that particular person with, like I said, what they think is funny or what Schulz thought was appropriate was very appropriate for the time to yes and hit an audience. So I'm not sure. I mean I gave gave up years ago to try to figure out what people want because I can't figure it out.
0: No. Well you know I I was thinking in Schultz's case it was it was just part of the man, you know? Yeah I I think think so too. Yeah, it was intuitive. Um and and in some sense as the eighties and nineties come around you kind of see him um as peanuts changed sort of slipping out out of sync a little bit with what was happening in the culture in the 80s and 90s. And you see Bill Watterson come in with Calvin oh. and Hobbes. And Calvin and Hobbes, I don't think would have worked in 1955. But in nope. ni- in the 1980s, you know, Calvin and Hobbes was perfect for the 80s and the early 90s. Um, yeah. You know, it, it expressed a set of attitudes And, of course, the interesting thing about Calvin and Hobbes, too, is it's just about this lonely boy and his his imaginary friend, which says something about the culture also, you know, and this disassociation or whatever. But Watterson, I think another person who I don't think was, you know, consciously trying to to create what he thought the public wanted, I think he just tapped into it. um. It's kind of interesting to think how the strip for the time, you know, whatever successful strip that defines its era or encapsulates its era, whether we're talking about Schultz or we're talking about, you know, um, Calvin and Hobbes or we're talking about Doonesbury or we're talking about, you know, Pearls and Swine or whatever.
1: Sure. I, I uh, I think Calvin is on the autism spectrum, actually. Uh-huh. But that's a different story. Well, that, um, that's
0: an interesting story. But, yeah, <laughs>
1: might, But but you know, they, they also say about Watterson, he never really came out and hung out with the other cartoonists and stuff. And I don't know if you ever met Schultz.
0: No, I never did. Did you?
1: But he was a very kind man. Um, yeah. and, and, and Peanuts is in many ways an extremely kind strip too.
0: That's an interesting take. Most so people I, say it, it's, a, it's a very... Well, Schultz said, in fact... You know, it was a strip about how nasty ch- kids could be. But I think you're right, because there's an empathy that runs through the strip. That Yeah, exactly. You know, mm-hmm.
1: That's probably also why it became so successful. I mean, people can't understand people who don't like other people, really. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, no, I think so. I, I don't think it's a it was never a mean strip. Sure. Lucy takes the football away and whatnot. But uh, but it had a lot of heart and a lot of, like you said, empathy.
0: Well, and our sympathies were always with Charlie Brown, right? You know, yeah. You know? I mean,
1: I, 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 ask, I don't know. What, what she, Peppermint Patty was always my favorite.
0: <laughs> oh, was she? I like Peppermint Patty, too. Although I, I think when she became so central to the strip, it became a very different story.
1: Maybe. I, I kind of lost track of it in the 70s, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, what was really going on. I read a lot of it as a kid and a young man. Yeah. And me then, too. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's stiffened in its own form somehow too, but I, yeah, my attention was elsewhere. Let me put it that way.
0: <laughs> well, I th- you know, getting back to the, the, what set us off on this discussion is this idea of figuring out what the public wants and, and being outside of it, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. I think, as you were saying, a popular cartoonist somehow has to be able to, I mean, in the mainstream media, somehow sure. to be able to tap into it. Although you know when you look at the underground cartoonists in the late 60s they were tapping into something that was in the culture as well yeah and expressed it perfectly you know mm-hmm. through through what they were doing so they're yeah. you know there's tapping into the larger culture there's tapping into you know smaller niches as well um i've never tapped into any of them <laughs>
1: <laughs> i've never i've never figured and that's <laughs> but i mean that's another thing of course the people who don't tap into anything Uh, Nobody. uh, I'm I'm not talking about anybody in this conversation, but you never hear of them, of course. So then you don't know them. (laughs) But but you know Crumb, you know, you know Gilbert Shelton because they did tap into something. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And and all of the ones. And also, I mean, there's another thing too that both Schulz and Crumb and Watterson and Trudeau has. Their work is damn good. Oh my God! Right. I mean, their work is just quality work that seems to make a difference too. Yeah
0: sorry and they, and they all make it look easy you know and and it's not <laughs> we, all, we know how hard yeah. it is and yeah. and but. they always make it look effortless it's really something to look at you know whether we're looking at Waterson, it just see, it feels so natural or dunesberry which is you know such an extraordinary work and mm. always just seemed so so natural you know and that's the the best strips just feel like they they came out of you know No stress whatsoever. They just appeared. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, that's not. So Ferdinand is not your only involvement with mainstream comic strips. I mean, you've also been working with um, another famous character uh, well-known here in the United States that I was surprised to find was a big hit in Scandinavia. And that's Beetle Bailey.
1: Yeah. Uh, But I've not worked on the regular strip. I mean, Mm -hmm. that was drawn by Maud, right? Uh, With help by Greg, his son. And after Maud passed away, um, it's done by three of his sons, Neil, Greg, and Brian, who writes a lot of the strips. Yeah. Yeah. But because it is so successful in Scandinavia, there's been a successful Beatle Bailey magazine in Scandinavia since the 70s. Yeah. Um, It it used to be bi-weekly for years. I'm not sure if it still is, but anyway, They simply did not get enough material out of the six daily strips and a Sunday page a week Mm -hmm. to fill the magazine. I mean, they have fillers, they run High and Lewis, they run some local strips, uh, they ran Crunk for a while, a whole bunch of of strips. But they need a certain amount of Beetle Bailey material in the Beetle Bailey magazine naturally. Sure. So they produce their own pages for the Scandinavian market over there. And Mm -hmm. I've been drawing those for Since 2007, I think, was the first one. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, So it's been a while. Mm -hmm. I basically, after Ferdinand stopped, I got recruited to work on this.
0: And how did that happen?
1: Uh, they, what do you mean? They, I got an email saying, uh, are you, would you be interested in trying Beetle Bailey for the Scandinavian market? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I mean, I knew I knew the Danish Beetle Bailey editor, and he's really good friends with the guy who was my editor in Ferdinand for 18 years, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess they talked about it and they said, okay, Henrik is done. I, I don't know, I'm speculating here, but Henrik is not doing Ferdinand anymore. He is available to do something. We could give him a shot. Yeah. Yeah. So they did. I mean, it was, I have to say, drawing Beetle Bailey was a steep learning curve. That oh, was really? really hard to begin with. Yeah, it is. You know, it's so simple. Yeah. So if you're imprecise, it just screams to high heaven. It, 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 uh, uh, it's very, very difficult, I thought. Yeah. It helped, you know, a year in or so it got better. But man, it was hard. Is it still hard? Or no. You, you've got it down now. Yeah I don't know. I mean, I. When well, Mort was, was good, he was mm-hmm. one of the best in the world, right? Yeah, yes. So I, I try not to look at what he did in the 60s and 70s, because then I can never draw another Beetle Bailey strip, I think. But, <laughs> so you know, I do it to the best of my ability. It seems to be okay. They keep printing it in the magazine and all that. But, you know, well, it, of course seen- it got a lot easier. Nothing is ever <laughs> easy, I think. Right. Uh, no. I mean, you know, having a beer is easy it's easy nothing in cartooning is particularly easy you you always have this problem of is it finished is it Mm -hmm. good enough or have i overworked this yeah and between those three chairs you're eternally fucked you just (laughs) are
0: it's so true and i have to say you draw you draw dynamite beetle bailey man i love you thank you you. Thank know? you. If, and folks, it. if you're listening and you have not seen Henrik's uh, Beetle Bailey, you've got to follow his Instagram feed, because that's where you'll see the ver- wide variety of what Henrik is capable of. And I'm telling you, this is a guy who can draw the pants off of anybody and in I wish. Well,
1: thanks jeff i wish unfortunately oh, that's not the case
0: well i love your stuff and thanks. and it is it is so varied and i think you know sometimes that throws people because though they may be seeing something in in your f- feed that they think is you know drawn by somebody else or they think it's somebody else's feed because you are so no, i
1: know bad. i know, <laughs> you know? Uh, joe uh, he was in poot as well i think yeah Uh, he said, oh, I I followed your Facebook stuff for a while, and I thought you were putting up a lot of different people's work. (laughs) No. (laughs) I I mean, I've always been advised to have one style, right? And then just do that, and people can recognize it. Um, After 40 years, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, no. (laughs) It's just I mean, I could just tell that I mean, one thing, of course, is to get the job of doing Ferdinand or Beatle Bailey or, you know, you have to try to hit that style to the best of your ability. Yeah. But even when I do my own stuff, I could just tell left to my own devices, I become stylistically restless and ah, why not try this and why not try that. And mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, that's just, I guess, the Troy I had to burn and I have to burn it this way and that's that
0: and and you know there there are in speaking of your instagram feed there are moments in there where you'll see it almost looks like you know henrik did a sketch this morning you know just to yeah. warm up to put up in in there and those doodles are always still i think very reflective of your your nature but also really beautiful you know they're they're really in and of themselves you may have just tossed them off or something but they're still you know Thank so you. accomplished yeah
1: that's that's so nice of you to say Jeff. yeah i uh, i wake up early i usually make a drawing in the morning
0: yeah that's what you know i got that impression because it seems like you know there's some things where you're showing comic pages or illustrations you've done hmm. for Books or whatnot. And then you'll show, you know, one of your, your drawings, which seems like you were just, you know, working yeah. it out and doodling. And, and all of a sudden it's this magnificent character and very moody or very atmospheric image. And you, you know, and I know it's just one of those things you're working on on the side there. And it's uh, just beautiful.
1: And but, it's not so much, well, I guess it's warm up too, but it's also just to try some new things all the time. Like, you know, yeah. then I bought an iPad and then I. Spend every morning just doing one drawing on the ipad just to figure out the tools and how it feels and can i really use it for serious work and all that right yeah 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 so so, and and i always buy some new brushes or new pens or whatever and it's great to just basically you know have your little lab going on the side
0: yeah 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 it
1: informs your regular work and yeah that's it's good i think it's a good thing to do well
0: so you're you're an experimenter and a and sort of a restless artist, and and you want to you know explore the medium in all of its aspects. Are you working you know both digitally and traditionally, or you do you lean yeah. one way or the other? Mm-hmm.
1: No, I I'm, I mean I haven't colored anything by hand for quite a while. Mm-hmm. That seems so much easier in the computer. But yeah, I both draw digitally and uh, I guess old school analog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have a little side business going to as a cartoonist where you sell your originals. Oh, yeah. It's a lot easier to sell those if you've drawn them by hand. No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no. You've got to have that, you know. um, Um,
1: But I don't know. But, then you know, then sometimes I finish them in the computer and then you can't really sell them anyway. I think in five years I might be totally digital. But let's see. Yeah. I also sometimes feel that there's things... That i can still do on paper that i can't do on my ipad pro or whatever mm-hmm. and um some kind of grittiness or resistance in the paper or whatever it is i don't know what it is or maybe it's just because i did it for so many years but anyway i yeah you, I, i'm not quite sure the
0: tools become an extension of yourself right and and there is something about sure. you know the paper and the resistance of the paper and the you know and for a long time until the apple pencil came along i just could not handle you know, trying to draw digitally, I just, it, there, it wasn't responsive enough. And then, yeah. then the pencil came along and I felt like, well, this is a tool that, you know, I understand and yeah. I can relate to and work with. And that changed everything for me. But, yeah. um, but, you know, it's, it's all in a matter of, of, in a sense, you, you get to know the tools intimately, you know, what a brush is going to do, you know, what mm-hmm. this brush is going to do versus that brush, mm-hmm. you know, and there's something about that that relationship you know you you know what this paper feels like versus that paper and and um you begin to understand it as though you're understanding an individual personality you know and uh and work with it in that way
1: yeah sure but there's also just a lot of muscle memory i think (laughs) to drawing there really is you know there is some kind of mechanics in it too otherwise you wouldn't get better the more you practice right it stands to reason i think oh yeah absolutely. absolutely um And, you know, know, those guys you mentioned earlier that makes it look easy, it is because they spend all those hours at the drafting table, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what it's about. And and it's it's the 10,000 hours rule,
1: you know, that I know. I know. And and maybe it's about that. But, you know, I've seen my kids do drawings that were damn good, too, without a lot of training. (laughs) So you never know. I mean, you know, it is it's also that thing between expression and craft. Right. Yeah if the craft takes over too much it can also kill it
0: yes oh absolutely is, is it
1: done or is it not done
0: right and, and you, i mean you, you start to stamp it out right and uh, if you if the craft overcomes the expression i think you're you you do not you you uh what's the word i'm looking for you risk you know something that's very analytical very cold very mechanical uh, feeling.
1: mechanical yeah i, yeah. I agree Yeah. On the other hand, mm -hmm. hand, I mean, I I also sometimes compare what we do to a musician. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they just can't play that guitar, you can't stand listening to it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you have to have a certain skill level, too. You have to have some craft. It's a a very difficult balance, I think.
0: In cartooning in particular, it's kind of an interesting question because the range is so great, you know, in terms of expressive characteristics. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, um, sometimes somebody who's a very kind of naive artist may come along in cartooning and and work within this one area, right, that Mm -hmm. they carve out for themselves and may be very successful at doing something that's very evocative, and very expressive. Mm. Uh, It may work. But then, you know, when, well, when they find themselves in another situation, they may not work so well, you know, Um, there are there's there's this tension i think in cartooning bef- between spontaneity and intuitiveness and and craft and for you sure. know some some of us you know can lean too far one way or the other it's i think that one of the difficulties is really trying to find that fine line particularly for those of us who are interested in you know the depth of the traditional uh uh, you know what is it i'm looking for that certain sense of mastery of the form you know that ability that flexibility to go from one thing to another that you know you and i kind of cherish is this ability to do things in a different different genre different mode um i treasure that ability you know although at the same time i try to find my own voice but
1: you know no no but but i also think it's something else too i mean if you just if you get too happy with your craft and you mm-hmm. can just do that, yeah. I think it becomes a little boring too. Not, with, not only what you do, but for yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, when you're out there where, you know, you go out in the ocean and now your feet can't touch the button, and a button, button sorry, <laughs> yeah, yeah. anymore. right? Now yeah. you got to swim. You <laughs> yeah. always have to push that a little bit as a cartoonist too, I think. Yeah. You know, the more you get out where you really can't swim, you're not going to drown but you got to do something to stay above water. That's where it gets interesting, maybe for the reader, but at least for yourself, I think. I mean, you always have to do something, in my opinion, that's difficult for you.
0: I I totally agree. If you're just cranking it out, you know, like, and this is the risk, I think, that some folks, you know, fall into when they, they do a daily strip and they start hiring out assistants and whatnot. You know, every now and again, they'll turn out their own. Go back to doing their own. I mean, there is that danger of just, you know, it becomes a job and it, when it becomes a job, you know, I mean, what fun is that? That's not why we got into this business to begin with. You know, it's No, it,
1: no, but, but did you remember that old 10 CC pop song? Uh, Art for art's sake, money. for Yes, God's I faith. do. Yes. I mean, it is also a job yeah yeah right. That's, I mean, I yeah. make a living at this. It is a job too and and I you know doing a daily strip is a lot of bloody work.
2: yes, <laughs> it is. depending
1: on your art style I can I have used the systems, too. sometimes you just have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the strip has to be produced and that's I've never done just the strip. yes, yeah. you know I've yeah, done a, a lot yeah. of other stuff on the side as well, right? So yeah, always you, you, here comes in that great illustration job. it's really well paid. I can't say no to that one. And suddenly you're looking at an 18 hour workday, and you're not that young anymore. So of mm-hmm. course you have one of your friends help you.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, that's, so, that's not really what I was, I was talking about. I was talking about like, you know, those cartoonists who kind of, you know, reach a point where they, they, they feel they're not as in love with it anymore. You know? I I know, Yeah, I was talking about that kind of thing because I think, or, or there is that, That that moment, I think, I guess what what I'm trying to say is I agree with you. You have to keep, you have to be in that kind of mindset where you're always striving, always trying to learn something new, always trying to push your art some way in in a way that it hasn't gone before. Always trying to accomplish those goals that you set for yourself as an artist Um, and explore, you know, because even... Amidst all of the other aspects, wherein, as you were saying, it is a job, and within that job, there are constraints, and you have to fulfill those constraints. Mm-hmm. There are those moments. You know, I mean, what was it? Art Spiegelman said, you know, cartooning is like this, you know, marriage between uh, art and art for art's sake and capitalism, you know, and uh, that's not the quote, you know, I can't remember the quote. But I it's at the gist. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and you know it's it's it really is that is the tension of it is to make a living at it. It's a commercial art form, uh, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, it's an art form and and hold on to that and not lose it. That's a real difficult tightrope to walk. And
1: although and, I, I have to say too, I mean, sometimes it's just nice that you can do some picture frames mm-hmm. because trying to reinvent yourself all the time too is exhausting. Yeah, it really yeah. is. So so I actually. I've always had something like Ferdinand or Beetle Bailey that I knew this is what is required. Right. And that's what I have to hand in. And, and I appreciate doing that too, I think, because it is just not as hard as trying to push yourself all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good combination. Yeah.
0: You know what the criteria are in those Uh, jobs and you know what you've got to do. The challenge is to make sure you can do it over and over again, you know, and and be able to do it with a certain level of craft and enthusiasm and integrity, you know.
1: Well, I also have to say and try to have fun with it at the same time. Yes. Because um, that that makes a big difference too, I think. I mean, maybe not, maybe, I don't know if people can see it when they read the strip, but it certainly makes a difference in your life. Yeah, I mean, if if you have to sit there and do something that you really don't like, I've had friends who've done that, right?
2: Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. I mean, why the hell that bother then? Why become a cartoonist? They were better paid job where you could do something <laughs> that you didn't like. Yes. So yes. You, have that, you have to find that joy in your craft, in, in what you can do, I think.
0: I think you're right. You're absolutely right. You have to find that, that place, you know, um, where, where even when you're doing it as a job, it's still cartooning that you love to do. Because yeah. still- of,
1: of course, there's also the other side of the coin, which is that you can also realize all the stuff that you can't do. Right. And that's extremely frustrating at the same time, I think. I mean, it is that, you know, that Leonardo da Vinci, the ecstasy and the agony kind of thing. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Both those aspects. The the older you get, I think, the the more the more craft actually you have to fall back on. The fewer days you have where you just think, why did I do this? I have no talent. Wow. I'm going to go, I'm going to go be a, become a plumber. No, not a plumber. <laughs> That's a hard job, but I'm going to go work at a gas station or something. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, I, I have fewer of those days now than I had 30 years ago, I must say. Oh, but yeah. Still come.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Every time, every every once in a while, you find yourself up against the wall. The other day I was trying to draw a hand, Uh, you know, in a position that I was not, you know, I had not drawn that a hand in that position from that point of view too many times and i went through i must have gone through like 50 variations on this hand you know i'm saying to myself what kind of talentless piece of but that doesn't happen all that much anymore
1: i I have a question though that guy didn't wear any pants with pockets or anything What? (laughs) Because you know that happens when deadline approaches. Suddenly yeah, right. Hands yeah. with pockets. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, not in this case. No. Hey. But, but, you know, but I, but I wasn't going to let that hand go. But if no, I had, I know. Deadline, I know. I know. You know. If yeah. I had a deadline, I'd have to be like, okay, I've got to let the hand go. But you know, I didn't have a deadline, so uh, you know, I got obsessed with it. You know.
1: Yeah. And, no, but that's another thing I think that's great about you know you have your your money paying jobs but but doing alternative comics or graphic novels or whatever on the side yeah, uh, yeah until you set a deadline with your publisher you have time to do the best you can under the circumstances yeah and not let that hand go but draw yeah. it until it's there and i mean that is so satisfying
0: it is once you've got it you go ah that felt good and I, yeah. you know and you feel you could climb that mountain and now you're ready for the next mountain. You know? <laughs> <laughs> hill.
1: Let's call it a hill.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Beetle Bailey and Mort sure. Walker because, you know, you were talking about how hard it was to master uh, Beetle Bailey and the style. the style. And so you know, let's talk about that style and and the evolution of that style. I mean, one of sure. the things that, you, that I admire about Mort Walker's work is how he developed this kind of shorthand. Yeah. Um, for characters doing all kinds of different things. Is that when, when you, is, is it mastering the shorthand that you're, you're talking about?
1: No. See, see, <laughs> more, he spent 30 years when yeah. you see the only, early, early Beatles strips, you know, they are rather detailed and stuff. He spent yeah. 30 years. Just making it simpler and simpler and more and more precise. hmm and he drew a hand the way Maud drew a hand. Sometimes it had five fingers, sometimes it had four, but it was always a Maude Walker hand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Henrik comes in, you know, after Maud has been honing his craft for 40, 50 years to try to draw a hand like Maud Walker, Walker does. That is not easy. No. Because, because, first of all, it's not consistent always. And also, it has to look like a Maude Walker hand. And when when Jeff, he draws a hand. It looks like he drew it, and when I draw a hand, it looks like I drew it. But the mm-hmm. job here is to draw it so it looks like more Walker, Walker drew it. Yeah. Yes. That's what's hard. I mean, you you simply it. There's a lot, of, like I said, muscle memory, but also just practice and practice, and then you kind of get the style into your own hand. You mix it a bit with your own. I will never be able to hit the more the Beetle Bailey style 100 percent, but I can try to approach it, and that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know. You get so much experience with it that you can do it, but but it is really, really hard in the beginning. It's like um, I usually compare it to taking a run with your legs yes. tied. <laughs> when you when you just drawing your own style, you just run. Just draw whatever you want, right? Mm-hmm. When you draw Bill Bailey or Ferdinand or Captain and the Kids that I've always, also had my hands in, you have to check all the time yes. if this goes with the style. That's why your legs are tied. So you can never really just be the horse that just runs across the field, right? Yeah. You always have to check every time, every time, every time. So after you've done that for six months, you've got, you have a lot of checks on your spine then, mm-hmm. you know, okay, this hand I'm drawing now, that isn't that style. The The way Mort draws trees, I remember that now, and that's why it mm-hmm. gets easier. But that, but in the beginning, it is extremely hard. Yeah. It's extremely hard to draw another person's style, I think.
0: Yeah, and especially one that is so defined and precise. as You're saying it's it's almost architectural
1: in that way. I mean, I I think when Mort was at his best, he was like an old jazz musician, you know, who just picked up his horn and just blew a couple of notes. You could hear it was uh, Chet Baker, and (laughs) it was perfect every time.
0: Yeah, (laughs) were you an admirer of Mort Walker's work before you took on Beetle Bailey? Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, there was. um, we have a whole bunch in the, I don't know if they still exist. <clears throat> when I was a kid, there was a whole bunch of, um, of women's magazines in Denmark, kind of like People Magazine, or they, they ran a gamut. Some of them were really trashy, some of them were less trashy, some of them were more, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, more fashion conscious, some of them were just into gossip or whatever. But my great grandmother, she bought one of these every week, mm-hmm. and it had an insert of comics. Oh, um, this, I guess they got the idea or whatever from the old uh, Will Eisner inserts. It was basically an insert, a little magazine inside the ma- inside the magazine that just had comics. Mm-hmm. And she saved those for me and gave them to me when I visited her. Uh-huh. And and that magazine had Beetle Bailey and that magazine had Ferdinand. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I so it, it was kind of a fun, you know, getting coming all the way around when I worked on those. But I love Beetle back then i thought it was a great strip and i was a soccer player for many years and we would uh, drive to play the other teams when they weren't in our town right Mm -hmm. and we always had beetle bailey magazine in the in the bus too and read them and and thought they were hilarious
0: that's that's so cool Uh, you know i I have to ask what is it about beetle bailey that makes him so popular in scandinavia i mean in the united states you know beetle bailey is just sort of like one of these characters been around so long now Mm -hmm that is sort of, you can't really judge its popularity because it's an iconic sure. figure, you know, but it it probably couldn't support a Beetle Bailey magazine in the United States. Um, but what is it about it in Scandinavia that makes it so so popular?
1: I, uh, let me see if I can put this as precisely as I can. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> like I said before, I, I really don't know. I mean, obviously, again, it's the quality of the strip. It is funny. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know when we used to read it on those soccer trips we would simply point to lieutenant fuss or whatever just the expression on his face it was so well drawn it was hilarious. Yeah. And that's what Schulz Charles Schulz always said to don't forget you're drawing something that's funny. Yes. Yeah. You know you're drawing something that's funny it has the pictures have to be funny too. Yeah. I mean and it's Mort, fine. Mort was an expert at that. I mean come on they, you know all of them they some of them just live on the drawings, I think.
2: Yeah. Oh, not, sure. Not
1: that the writing wasn't fabulous. It was hilarious. But I think it was just that the script was so funny. It's funny. I mean, yeah. Calvin and Hobbes was a big success too. Garfield, which I thought was very funny in the beginning too, was a big success in Scandinavia. I think it's maybe it's because they're good. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I don't know. It's, it's, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that could be a possibility yeah uh, you I know so. um um you know i think I'm, I'm, as you're talking i'm thinking about the expressions and you're talking about um lieutenant fuzz and some of the expressions and you know and, and i think one of the things that mort walker was able to do and great cartoonists can do this is really distill facial expressions yeah. uh, and, in such a way that they communicate again so what appears so effortless but if you've ever sat down to try to draw those kinds of expressions that convey as much as say Mort Walker can convey or, Mm -hmm. or the other person I think of off the top of my head, Chuck Jones just had the style. Oh
1: yeah. Oh yeah.
0: You know, ability to convey an expression, you know, those great uh, Charles Schultz or, you know, all of these great cartoonists, it's not easy. It really isn't easy. And, and especially to simplify it to the degree that somebody like Mort Walker did.
1: But actually, I think, yes, the face, sure, but also the body, right? There's yes, so much yes. language in the body. I yes. mean, those two things, they are so tightly wound. Yeah, yeah. And then than and Chuck Jones were just fabulous at that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know,
0: two very different approaches graphically. Yeah, oh, yeah. But that's know, fine.
1: Yeah. That's why we live.
0: Yeah, exactly. I I Appreciate them all. Well, I look to them all. And I don't know if if you still do, you know, as accomplished as you are. Um, But I mean, I feel as though, in some ways, as an artist, I'm a perpetual student. And I always, yeah, right. And I always go back to those guys who I admire. Uh, mm. so much and mort walker and you know chuck jones and or hank ketchum or you know charles schultz or whomever uh, Bill line was
1: amazing. oh me. my
0: gosh yeah. right you know yeah. he was a cartoonist cartoonist in that sense i mean yeah. everybody i talk to we always go oh my god that line that line was just like wow you know
1: i'm friends with uh, ron ferdinand on facebook and he draws uh he draws Dennis the Menace now, and he puts up all those old Ketchums. They mm-hmm. are so beautiful.
0: Yeah, he's not only is he a, a, a you know a terrific cartoonist in his own right, Ron Ferdinand's a big fan of yeah. Hank Ketchum. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm friends with him there, too. He's been on the show. Okay, uh, cool. You know, i got
1: to listen to that one.
0: Yeah, it's way back in the archive. Uh, what a wonderful guy, wonderful guest, and we had such a great time and uh i really enjoyed him and uh, marcus hamilton the other artist who works on dennis was also on and okay. i love that because you know dennis the menace is another one of those uh, iconic 50s strips you know sure uh and uh but you know if you go back to the original hank ketchum um you know i think one of the things that happens when a cartoonist you know isn't around to to talk to anymore or to or you know always passed away it's trying to keep that that work alive, and I really appreciate you know what Ron does there because mm, me too. It's lovely to see that stuff, and every time yeah. I see it, I'm just like in such awe and envy at what Ketchum was yeah. capable.
1: That's of that's exactly do. what you get from looking at your heroes. Yeah, you yeah. love it, and you, I, I mean, it's getting better too, but man, I, yeah. you see all your own shortcomings too.
0: Yes. Time. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like looking in a mirror. So you know, um. So, Beetle Bailey was a challenge in, in that sense, um, trying to, to, you know, walk in Mort Walker's shoes, really. Sure. As far as you can. Are you still as busy with it as you were a few no. years ago? No? no,
1: actually not. About five years ago, it tapered off a bit. I still do some of it, but not to the same degree. I think, like I said, I'm not sure the magazine is bi-weekly anymore. And, and they have another guy doing them, too. I don't know if I got too expensive or what. Or They just like the other guys' work better. But uh-huh. uh, that's fine. Um, so, no. I, I also work on another character called Petsy or Rasmus Klum, a Danish character.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Which is, uh, I guess, a Danish equivalent to Mickey Mouse or something. You know, it, all, everybody in Denmark knows this character. It started as a comic strip in the 50s and was collected into books. And okay. those books have been on children's rooms floors for the last fifty, sixty years.
0: I see Wow.
1: And I grew up with them and started working on that around the same time I started working on Beetle, maybe a Beetle too, maybe a couple of, of mm-hmm. years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's went through different transitions. There's been a lot of different artists on that character. I um, see. but uh cheerily, you know the amusement park in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. They basically made a company with the people who own the the copyright these days of that character. So I work for them to do things that they use entirely and and for sometimes for merchandising and stuff.
0: Oh, I see.
1: Uh-huh. Sure. Uh huh. And it's I don't know what to really compare to here. It's a bear and his friends, but it's uh, it's such a gentle universe. Um, <laughs> Nothing bad ever happens, you know. You if if uh, if a bucket falls down on your head and breaks, you use it to build a sled, and then you go whatever. I mean, there's nothing bad ever happens. It's a, it's a really nice place to visit or a world to to be in now and then. So I I really like doing that too, actually.
0: Well, and I'm trying to find. I've I know I've seen it on your Instagram feed. Maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah, probably, but but, mm, not too much. um, yeah, it's probably there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I put so much stuff up there. Who knows? I'm sure it's there, but it might be a bit back then,
0: a little bit further back. Oh, so yeah. a, a little. Um, yeah, I'm finding. I think I've got one here, which is beautiful. Little, there's like a, a little couple little bears in. Um, what looks like, he's got a little helicopter kind of gyro thing yeah. made out of wood and then yeah, that sounds about it yeah 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 um i mean it's really quite charming and beautifully done and again a very different style uh from beetle bailey or uh you know a little more detailed say than than beetle yeah. bailey oh
1: yeah oh, definitely
0: but still very beautiful yeah Thank but you. You, yeah as a matter of fact i see my comment here no oh, well. <laughs> I, 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 nice I, one yeah, so I we love have to stop talking. Yeah, but, you know, so this looks like a lot of fun, actually. That's true. It is. It it's is. It,
1: it is a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, there's a. got to tell people, you know, go to go to Henrik's um, Instagram feed. It's Henrik Kim Rare, um, H-E-N-R-I-K-K-I-M-R-E-H-R, because you're going to see some. It's it's a treat. It really is. Every day it's a treat and uh, to see this work. So, you know, you also mentioned the captain and the kids. You said you yeah
1: didn't... I, yeah, it, I mean, actually, I didn't draw those. I just inked them, but mm. it was again the same problem trying to hit a style, yeah um, they, they they published them in Norway um once a year in this Christmas book mm-hmm. and uh, and they couldn't find material that they could print after because they were just, uh, I guess, I don't know, the old films had disappeared or whatever. so they found some old prints. Uh And they asked me to basically re-ink them and also I had to change the format and stuff. But I just mentioned it because it was, you know, another thing where you had to hit a style that wasn't yours.
0: Yeah. and You know, it's kind of interesting. These venerable characters, uh, you know, particularly Captain and the Kids, which has been out of the public eye here in the United States for, oh, my gosh, you know, a long, long time. I Mm. I think 2000, maybe when the strip ended. I don't know. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it's been a long time. Although maybe it's running in reruns someplace. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? But I, I,
1: I actually did a, a story for uh, the Scandinavian Beetle Bailey magazine with the guys from Beetle Bailey and the Captain and the Kids. That oh, really? On some yeah island.
0: Oh man, now that you should you should put up on the feed, man. I'd love. Yeah, to
1: I don't know where those files are, though. That was a while back. <laughs> so you know uh, so you've.
0: Aside from what we're talking about here, which is this rich array of comic books, you've also, you know, drawn a number of graphic novels, which are very, yeah. very different. Some of, uh, and, and I guess some of them are historical mm-hmm. as well. You yeah. know, so why don't you run us through a couple of those, you know, uh, stories and or those bodies of work and um, sure. tell us a little bit about some some of the work that you're really proud of.
1: Oh, I'm not proud of any of it, but I'll tell you about some of the work. (laughs) Okay. Um, Actually, when I was a kid, um, my grandma had um, the history of the world in 18 books. It was this Swedish professor who wrote it, um, Mm -hmm. and and, and it's unreadable today. He is so racist, and he's such a Western European and all that. But he managed to do one thing, and that was to tell the story of human civilization in one long swoop. Mm -hmm. So for the narrative of it, they are... Those books are still fantastic. I mean, if you can stomach the the petty shit from the 30s yeah. and 40s, they are great. And I used to read them when I was a kid, when I visited her. Mm-hmm. And, and I got a taste for history then that I've never recovered from. <laughs> I really haven't. I, I love history. I think it's interesting and, you know, full, of course, of human tragedies and sorrows and love and everything. True. But also just... Um, I guess the exotic aspect of it that, you know, it was a different time, people were different, they were thinking differently, they were believing different things, mm-hmm. all that I find so fascinating. So Me I've done too. a lot of historical books, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first, uh, they weren't called graphic novels, then they were called albums in Europe. Um, that kind of Franco-Belgian format of forty-six or sixty-four pages that you find in a in a ten-ten, for instance, sure. or an Asterix book, right? I mean, that was the the regular format in Europe for for decades, actually. Is it so still? No, not no, not to the same degree. They're still around, but not to the same degree. Okay. But anyway, when I started, uh, I started in the mid-eighties, uh, basically having a career, and and that was what was published mostly in Denmark and also what was produced because they they sold a lot of books at that point. So they had money to to give me an advance to do a book to right? even though I was too green and too young and all that. They, they you know, they had the funds for it. So they did it and mm-hmm. see if they could uh, basically create some new locally grown talents. Mm-hmm. And the first one I did was a book about a uh, Danish Viking King, actually. Who is, oh. who is buried in the in my hometown, Owens, in Denmark? He's in the in the main cathedral there, and he um, he was an interesting character because he was kind of in the transition from from the Viking age to the Middle Age, and and uh, died horribly because of that, because he couldn't really navigate the changing times. So so I tried to do a book about that, and I've done here and there medieval books. Uh, I did a book about Gavrilo Princip, the guy who shot Archduke Franz Ferdinand and Sarajevo oh. in 1914. And uh, uh-huh. and basically, he didn't start World War One, but he gave kind of the spark that created World War One. Right. right. Um,
0: so when I, you're working on, on the research in these books must be so. exhaustive.
1: Yeah, but th- I love it. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the great part, I would say. It's mm-hmm. also because I think... There's something else i like about doing graphic novels it is that not only do you get to create a book but if you pick the right subject you get to learn something yourself yeah. yeah um that's really that's a really nice thing to have in your work too i think and it's enjoyable right i did a book about um david crook who um was an english jew who ended up in china and was in jail for three or four years during the Cultural Revolution. And I had to learn a lot about China then. I mean, I didn't write that book. I just drew it. But still, in order to draw it and to know what you're actually doing, you got to figure a lot of stuff out. It's a great personal education, too. Sure. That's take- also, what I think, what I like about these historical things. And, and the last two I've done has been about Tolstoy and Dostoyevsky, actually. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. So, so I, I know a lot more about Russia than I used to.
2: <laughs> I bet no, you don't.
1: no, I mean, it's, I like it. It's good. Mm-hmm. I understand more what's going on in Ukraine right now and a whole bunch of stuff, right?
0: Yeah. And uh, so, and these were published primarily in Europe?
1: Yeah. Uh, these, I've, I've, I've basically been working for French publishers the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the Gabriel Prince one came out in 10 languages. So that's also out in English. It's called Terrorist in the, in the U.S., Okay. Um, and the other ones, some came out in French and German and Dutch, uh, Danish, of course, there was some Italian. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I've done, let's see, I think five books for the French now. Okay. The Dostoevsky one comes out next January. So that's not out yet. But so some of them have sold into international markets too, when I'm not 100% sure which then, ones went where sometimes. <laughs> Um, how did you but,
0: get involved with French publishers in particular and and do you write these as well and do you write them in French
1: no mm-hmm. um, I mean I wrote the Garrido Prince one the other four ones have been I've worked with writers um, I got in contact with them because I did those those 9-11 stories yeah. uh, Tuesday and Tribeca Sunset and they were published in French I see and the editor there I stayed in contact with them And when I had that Gabriel Princep book, I asked if he had moved to another company, but if they might be interested in publishing that and they were. So they basically put me under contract and gave me an advance. And that's the same company that I did the Tolstoy and Dostoevsky books for as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other two, one was about a Danish journalist who was a good friend of a very good friend of mine, who's also a writer. And uh, he told the journalist told my friend a lot of stories, and we basically did a book about him. He's he passed away now, but he's quite famous in Denmark, mm-hmm. and was um, was spy a spy or agent for for the Cuban communist government. I was actually huh? sent down to Bolivia to try to get Che Guevara out of there. Oh wow! Maybe because he was also a notorious liar.
2: <laughs> <So>
1: <laughs> we don't know, but we but we lay that all that out in the book. It's a book called The Cuban Fall. Um, okay. And that we did that for a, a French agency, an agent, basically, who then sold the book into different markets. And then I, I was recruited by that agent to draw a book about David Crook, the, the guy I talked about, the British guy who ended up in China and said he was in jail there for four years and then released. And they're, oh, sorry. Sorry. We had you in jail for four years. There was nothing <laughs> wrong with you after all. It was during the Cultural Revolution. But so we get into all that too. That, that is written by Julian Voloy uh, who is um, a Colombian German writer who lives in New York City too. I know him from here.
0: Mm-hmm. So you know when you talk about Tolstoy or, or David Crook or you talk about um, Dostoevsky, are these subjects brought to you or are they subjects that were already, already something you were interested in? Um, well, I, know- I,
1: I don't do them if not. I'm not interested.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: Uh, I mean, uh, so the Gabriel Prince's book was actually because he saw himself as a terrorist and and I was here for 9-11, right? There was pretty much next door. So I was interested in trying to explore what makes people want to do a terrorist act as opposed to something else. That's that's why I wrote that book. Uh, The Cuban Fall was basically Morton, my friend who wrote it. And I we used to take a long walk in Central Park when he came to town. And and he talked about this guy, Jens Day, and I said, we got to make a graphic novel out of that, man. Yeah. <laughs> so we did. Um, and then I was approached. That, that script for the David Crook was, was was already in existence. They had they were, were actually in talk with the Chinese uh, cartoonist to draw it. Mm-hmm. But then he pulled the plug. He was afraid that it was too critical of the regime over there. He didn't want to end up in jail.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. Uh, so then they asked me, and I was—I'm not, not afraid of jail. Uh, no. Also, I don't <laughs> live in China. So. Right. So I drew it. Um, and then while I was drawing that, I was approached by that editor who took the 9/11 stories and the Gerardo Princep story, and he had a proposal on his hand by a Belgian writer, Chantal Van Den Hovel, who uh, who had pitched this Tolstoy and his wife story. Basically, it's about Tolstoy and and Sophia, his wife. Mm-hmm and he said hey like you might be the man for that job what do you think and i said sure that that sounds great and then uh, so i worked with Chantal. i think i really like working with her actually she's very good at giving space but also at providing an excellent script
0: yeah i was going to say are you working with a full script or are you working with sort of general outlines and then
1: well the the books are usually the books are accepted on a general outline usually Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a writer they've worked with before that they trust, or they trust their previous output, right? Then then uh, it comes under contract, and then it's the script is written, and then I get the script. I see. Okay. Um, and Chantal and I, we were talking, and uh, and we said, you know, if the if the Tolstoy goes well, then we'll do Dostoevsky. So we pitched Dostoevsky too, and they took and, that.
0: And is this a, a snippet of a of a true story from Dostoevsky's life, or yeah, it
1: is basically the story of his life, kind of. Mashed up with a bit of his writing and oh, ah, not shit. really his writing, but but his stories and yeah. And how big? Of... You know, they they, they always called um, autobiograph. No, not I mean biographical comics, but I don't really think they're biographical. I think they're more like a portrait. Because you know, you write a biography, you try to get all the details and all the right yeah. dates, of when they were born and when their parents were born and when their children were born and whatnot. But when you do a graphic novel, you don't have all that much space. And it's not the point either, I think. The, the point is to try to create a portrait, to try to get the essence of the person. Mm-hmm. The same way you would put somebody down on the seat bef- before your canvas, right? And try to catch their essence in their portrait. And that's what I think we're doing when we're doing these stories about real people who lived.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's really, that's really, I think that's a great way of looking at it because you can never... You know, I mean, get every single aspect and and every nuance you have to sort of immerse yourself, I guess, in the subject to the point at which you feel as though you can express something about them.
1: Yeah, that's what I think. But I also noticed, I mean, for instance, I read a biography on John Le Carré and then I read his own autobiography afterwards. And his was just much better. And oh. I think it was because he's a professional storyteller. He cut all the crap. Uh-huh. He cut what was important, he thought, for portraying himself, right? Yeah. And he got a really good feeling for him, I thought. Whereas the the biography on him was full of details. which mm-hmm. I, Most of them I forgot 15 minutes after I had read. Yeah. Book. So, mm-hmm. so... Um, it's fine, and I understand the scholarship and everything of writing biographies, and it's good to have all the details and have a record of it. I'm not interested in it. I mean, yeah. maybe as a reader, but definitely not as a writer or a cartoonist. I yeah. have other fish to fry. I, yeah. I, 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 go, I try to find the essence instead.
0: Well, yeah, oh, before we leave, the, the, I think this is a really interesting topic. Um, I, uh, I'm interested in your interest in Le Carre, and is that something that you're thinking of doing in the future, a Le Carre book? No. No, <laughs> First, I
1: don't think I can get the rights to do his work. Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean, I love uh, spy stories, but uh, yes, um, so. they're great. They're just yeah. great fun. I oh, don't know uh, if I can ever write one, maybe. But I mean, that's like, you know, there's those I would like to write uh, would write like to write a whodunit. it. I would like to do a spy story. I would like to do a pirate story. I would like to do a western before well, I die. I'll tell but you, you know, I, there's a limited number of years that you can work in, unfortunately.
0: I know, but you know you would be perfect for a lucare story. I, I mean, I think you I,
1: I think you should write his sons and tell them that
0: yeah, I will <laughs> um, well, I Lucare is one of my favorite writers from from the Cold War era, you know, I mean, he's sure. He's just a, a master storyteller and absolutely. and uh, and his stories, they're spy novels, but they go so far beyond, you know, genre. I mean, it's silly to apply that kind of
1: no, they're literature, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and, you know, the spies are so ambiguous, which is why they're good. And they're so conflicted and they're real, literally characters. I mean, I yeah. love those books. Yeah, the, me, some of they, them are better than others. That's for sure. Oh, but the good sure. ones are outstanding.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He's one of those writers who's, who's, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I was talking to, to this about this with a friend the other day, and we, were, we he was talking about his kids and whatnot, you know, and I, I was having the same experience with some of my students, and and you know, they don't talk about novels the way that we used to, and um, and I, I hope that they're reading, you know, books like, I mean, it would be easy to forget Lacare, you know, because he's so. Yeah closely associated with his era. But uh, I hope, you know, those books carry forward because they really are in-depth explorations of of character and of conflict that are really quite insightful and quite powerful, really.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot you know, I, I found some old VHS tapes under my bed that uh-huh. I recorded when I lived in Toronto 20 years ago, or more, no, this must be almost 30 years ago now.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, and I had recorded them from a TV station there, so there were commercials in the middle, and there were commercials for some movies there that I had no idea what was. And I mean, they were there in the movie theaters at that time, right? Right. And so much disappears. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and maybe Caray will too, and you know, that's the way it goes, I think. He had a pretty good life.
2: Yeah, writing sure. Them,
1: and um I think yes. kept, I, I think Jack, uh, speaking of uh, thriller writers, there's a guy, Jack Higgins.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, who, I know uh, Jack.
1: Who, they were all about racetracks um, and not as complex as like race. but he said something that I thought was that I've talked to heart. He said, when you start out as a writer or any kind of artist, you want to reach the top of your profession, right? You want to be on the top of the hill. Mm-hmm. But then you do it for a long time and you realize you're not going to get to the top of the hill. But you climb pretty far. And you know what? The view from here is not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a very nice way of looking at it, I think.
0: Sure I is. Mean, you
1: know, there are not going to be many Dostoevsky's or Tolstoy's or John le Carrés, but you yeah. can still have a very good life.
0: Well, you know, Henrik, I think that's so true. I mean, it really is. And, it, and I think what it comes down to, is is if you love what you're doing Mm -hmm. and you can incorporate it into a broader experience of life Um, you know I think you can have a wonderful life uh, as an artist no matter where you are on that ladder where you are you can find a degree of satisfaction as Jack Higgins said from whatever mountain you are on top of you know uh, you know the
1: view can be pretty good
0: yeah. Higgins was a good writer. <laughs> um, and I read a bunch of his books when I was younger. Uh, my dad was a big fan of his and I enjoyed his stuff, That's but yeah, no, look, It's all plot with, with Higgins, but still. Yeah, good exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we can't judge, we have no idea what's going to last and what isn't. And I suppose it's folly just to think about, to even ask those questions We're it's not up to us. It's up to the
1: future. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's but, the future's headache.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, oh, <laughs> but you know, I I'm curious in the United States here. If you go to a, if you go to a comic shop, just a mm. comic up outside of New York City, because comic shops in New York are just so terrific, right? But if you go to a comic shop here in upstate New York, you're not mm. going to find, or even Barnes and Noble, right? You walk into Barnes and Noble, and they've got a great stack of graphic novels, you know. All of them, primarily, they they come from the big publishers. You might find a few fan graphics. You hardly find any drawn in quarterly. You you find a bunch of manga, a bunch of manga. But in terms of European comics, we don't have any idea what's going on in Europe or European comic history. And it's really a shame because there's a rich history, rich tradition of comics in Europe. I mean, there might be a Tintin and there might be an Asterix. And that's that's really about the extent of it. You don't see too much else. So your comics are being published. Your your graphic novels are being published by a French publisher in Europe. How do you feel about the comic scene in Europe? How involved are you with the European comic scene today? Um, And what are some of the benchmarks that we should be that I should be looking for? You know, some of the great. Sure.
1: Sure. I mean, first of all, you know, there's a whole bunch of different languages over there. I mean, I don't know. Do you want like a brief history of European comics or because you can get that, too?
0: Well, you know, yeah, if you want to do a quick overview, you know, don't.
1: Yeah, yeah, Because what happened was, you know, they used to import a lot of American comics until World War Two. And then France was occupied by Germany and Belgium was occupied by Germany. And those were the two main centers where they then realized, okay, we're going to do our own then because we have a market for it. And so they did. And before that, there were Tintin and a couple of other strips, but that created a real boom. And they had a number of magazines, weekly magazines, I think, or maybe some of them were monthly, just stacked with comics for mostly for for boys, stories for boys. But it basically created the Franco-Belgian comics culture. And um, and they are there's so many of them, and there were so many magazines. Right, some of them made it over here. Somebody like Moebius. Sure. Came out of that, for instance, he did a, a series of Western stories called Blueberry, yeah, which was a massive hit, and which are they are the reasons why I became a cartoonist. Actually, oh. those books, I think, I don't know if I would have without those. But Valerian, they made a movie out of it a couple of years ago. That was not all that great, but the strip was fantastic the books were fantastic, and they were they were a bunch of historical stuff too. You know, they basically everything where you could tell stories for boys, ancient Rome, pirates lots of stuff and then in the 60s just like over here there was a sort of rebellion and, <laughs> and an insistence on more mature uh, subjects in comics yeah and that happened in france and belgium too belgium too and so so that's basically what created what would be the equivalent to graphic novels over there and they're still around all the magazines have folded i think maybe there's one of them ah, there's still around but most of them have folded and now you just produce books, basically, the same way you do here. I mean, they're aimed for bookstores. That tradition was the one I grew up with, really. I mean, I read Batman and Superman, who I couldn't stand Superman. He's a cream puff, Casper Mills. So then I still think so, <laughs> but, um, but Batman and Spider-Man as a kid. Right. We had Donald Duck magazine, extremely successful in Scandinavia and Beetle Bailey. But in the 70s, they started publishing a lot of these French Belgian books just as books, or they are known as albums. They're like 46 or 64 pages, sometimes 80. And that created a boom of comics in Denmark. Um, At some point per capita, they were sold more comics in Denmark than anywhere else in the world. Wow. Um, Mm. And that, that that was basically because they had 40 years of production that they could, from the French and the Belgians, right? That they could publish in 10 years. So we got the cream of the crop and we got a lot of it and we got it fast. It was fantastic.
0: Yeah, I guess it was.
1: Um, and that was kind of what I grew up with, right? And what made me want to be a cartoonist. Ah, okay. So it's not, I don't find it difficult to fit into that French-Belgian tradition because that's kind of the way I think in comics. So it's, it, I mean, I always say I love New York City and I have a family here and everything, but I do Ought to live in the south of France, at least in terms of my work. Yeah. If that's where I kind of belong. At least I think so myself. Sure, sure. Um, so that's how I look at that. Um, I mean,
0: well, you weren't, course, I was yeah. just going to say, you, you know, in the United States, it's amazing how hamstrung in a way we are by the Western tradition of superheroes in particular. You didn't yeah. have superheroes there uh that defined you know the comics medium in the same way that it did here
1: no um, for a while in france there was an awful lot of westerns and an awful lot of science fiction though but yeah okay. no sure sure they they don't have to wear their underwear on the outside of their pants <laughs> <laughs> anyway so um what was that i thought i had another point to that yeah have you ever been to france
0: i have been to france but it has been 30 years now all
1: right i mean in 2012, I went with the wife and the kids. And uh, and British Airways, of course, lost my wife's uh, suitcase. So we had to go to Galerie Lafayette to get her some clothes for the first couple of days. Uh-huh. And, and you know, Galerie Lafayette is like Macy's. Uh-huh. It's basically a department store. Mm-hmm. Except they had uh, one section with, I think, a thousand comics. Oh, my gosh. That they were selling. This was in Macy's, right?
0: Yeah, you right. Go, you
1: go into any any subway station they sell albums there the hotel we checked into yeah while you were waiting to check in they had 10 mm. uh comics lying around that people could browse and look at
2: ah so different.
1: And, and that's how much space it has in the you know in mm. the in the whole media picture mm-hmm. over there and i thought as much i mean why am i working for the danes where it used to be like that maybe not to the same degree but but at least closer but that has disappeared in denmark at this point or even in the us where you have to go to a comic book store to get comics yeah here you could go into fnac you know um i guess it's the equivalent to barnes and nobles and barnes and nobles do have a decent graphic novel section they really do but yeah it just takes up uh, so much space in France. And I thought, you got to try to get in touch with this again, somehow. So actually, that's, that's why I tried to sell that Gabriel Prince book to the French.
0: Yeah. Makes um,
1: and, and, you know, they, um, they give cartoonists uh, medals of honor from the government and stuff like that over there. It yeah. doesn't have much here. Schultz got one, I remember, but it, you know, it seems to be it just French cartoonists are just regarded with a lot more respect than than say people who make comic books in the U S
0: yeah. Well, yeah. And in in, the, in, I mean, the stigma that's attached to comics um, even still here in the United States, I mean, there's still kind of a stigma to it. You know um, it, it doesn't exist in Europe or in Asia or wherever else around the world. Comics here, we were irreparably harmed by what happened in the 1950s with the comics code
1: authority you know. I think we were, but I think it's going to pass actually, because if something is booming now, it's graphic novels for teenagers, right? That's the oh, yeah. big boom in the business right now. Mm-hmm. They are all going to read them. In yeah. thirty years, they're not going to look down on comics.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's true.
1: So, yeah, sure. So we'll maybe dead. our generation, right? <laughs> I mean, if we were young in the sixties and seventies, there was still that feeling that it was for kids and also it was trash. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't think that's going to be the case with my boys generation, for instance, you know, they're in their early 20s. Now they always read comics along with books and mm-hmm. watched movies and played games or whatever. It's just a part of whatever culture they use. Yeah. And, uh, and they, I don't think they're going to look down on comics. They got uh, just like us. They got a great experiences out of them.
0: Yeah, well, it's great. You know, and I think I, you're I, right. Yeah.
1: I also think just the critical mass of of work that is not for kids is gonna change people's minds. Not people who are eighty years old or seventy. They they're gone, I think, for yes. that purpose. But you know, Mouse is around, Cloves is around, Chris Ware is around. There's so much really, really good work around. It. From American cartoonists too.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> so I mean, you know, I think it's gonna be like um pop music maybe. Mm -hmm. Or maybe even the way jazz was in in the 20s. Nobody thought jazz was anything either, right? Nobody thought rock and roll was anything in the 50s. It was going to go away, blah, blah, blah. But then the, the more you get mature works, the more people realize it. And the people who experienced it initially, they grew up. They suddenly sit in New York Times or whatever, L.A. Times and write reviews. Yeah, so it's just a matter of time I think, And it's a matter of having enough quality work. And and, uh, speaking of that, about the French, I mean, there's, um, I don't know if it ever came out in English, but there was an Italian cartoonist, Hugo Pratt, who made uh, a strip and a series of books about Corto Maltese. uh, Oh, yes. A sailor. Uh, Yeah. And that's one of my favorites. I love that. Oh, yeah. Then that's, I mean, that was, that was started in the 60s, for instance.
0: Yeah, we have, I mean, if you go to shops in the city, you'll find... Cordo maltese and okay and find blueberry and things like that you'll you find them i think there was a publisher uh, i don't know if they're still be still around nbm
1: yeah they, yeah they're still around
0: yeah they're still around they publish a lot of european stuff but you know yeah. i think
1: you know terry grew up over there that's why the publisher
0: oh right yeah, yeah yeah sure and that's where he experienced all that great stuff and so you find a lot of a lot of stuff published by them it's it's just unfortunate that it doesn't reach like comic shops outside of urban areas you know because there's so many people who are unaware of that material and even my own my own experience now that i live upstate you know it's frustrating because i go to a comic shop and i never find anything that i'm that's i'm really interested in because i stopped reading superhero stuff a long time ago and most comic shops here they just don't venture beyond the the big three you know uh, marvel dc and image you know and and maybe some dark horse hellboy might be the the odd man out you know and and that but otherwise it's really hard to find stuff and uh, especially like stuff that you're talking about is like like staples of the european tradition
1: but but i mean even now there's a guy called nicolas de Cressy who i think is amazing uh-huh. Um, and there's a young kid, uh, he's probably over 30 now, but Bastian Veves, who um, he started out, he was he was a bit of a, ooh, ooh, look at this, because he only worked digitally when he started about 15 years ago, but he mm-hmm. has the most beautiful line and uh-huh. uh, and a very minimalistic, but extremely elegant approach to making comics. And, and you could really feel that he grew up with manga. Uh-huh. He tells stories very much in that tradition but mm-hmm. it is so elegant, and the, and the stories are great. He did one about the Russian ballet dancers that I adore.
0: Really interesting. Yeah.
1: And then they did something which I guess maybe, I don't even know if the fans hated it or not, but they took Koto Maltese, uh-huh. and then they updated it. So he's basically, he's a little bit younger, maybe, maybe not, but he's running around now, and they had Baskin <laughs> leave uh, draw the book. And it's okay. basically written as if Pratt had done Koto Maltese now, I think. I you know, see. They, they, it's still the, it's somewhat of an adventure, but, you know, now it deals with drugs and blah, blah, blah. And I have to say, I love that book. Oh, it's it's great. great and a great way of taking Corto Maltese because they also they have Ruben Paello, who's a Spanish artist, extremely good, draw new Corto Maltese stories in the old style, more or
0: less. Uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: They're not bad either, but uh, but I thought Bastian Weave's take was brilliant, basically.
0: Uh, and did he write it as well?
1: No, they had a writer on that one, mm-hmm. but he is uh, very talented. It, yeah, I mean,
0: so it's Bastien Reeves.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, I can send them to you. Bastien, B-A-S-T-I-E-N, Reeves, V-I-V-E-S. Oh, OK. And, and check out Nicolas, 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 N-I-C-O-L-A-S. And then D-E, you know, the French. That's where they okay. came from. And then cressy C-R-E-C-Y. OK. C-R. And then there's two guys called Rupert and moulot. they're two guys. They always work together, who make um, very, very interesting stories. Uh, one of them came out in English, "A Barrel of Monkeys." That was like their big breakthrough.
0: Barrel of Monkeys. Uh,
1: Barrel of Monkeys. If you can find it. Try it. It, it. it is not only is it hilarious, but it's very innovative too. They're playing with the form a lot without um, losing the narrative. They're really, really good, I think. But they did a book. That is available in English too, I know. But who did it now? I can't remember. Um, anyway, people should Google them. Hubert, uh, R-U-P-P-E-R-T. And the other guy's name is Mulo, M-U-L-O-T. M-U-L-O-T. Okay. They're brilliant. And uh, the, the one they did uh, recently was about a guy who kind of loses himself in the internet. A French oh. filmmaker, uh-huh. but the the stories are interesting. They're really well written, and they are the the way they play with the form is wonderful, uh-huh. and almost up there with not like Chris Ware, but just as uh, curious. I would say I love their work. I think they're uh-huh. brilliant.
0: Fantastic. Well, you know, message me those names again on yeah, sure, sure. Instagram and I'll put them in the uh, in the notes for the show. So, yeah, I'll, so I'll try to find
1: the titles, too.
0: Yeah, it was very First cool. You know. in English. Yeah. You know, Fantagraphics was publishing a series of books when Kim Thompson was still alive. A series yeah. of uh, pamphlets called um, the Ignat series, which were oversized pamphlets.
1: Yeah, I remember them.
0: You remember them? They were beautiful and there were some yeah. great uh comics from europe in there um uh, one of my favorite creators uh gippi the italian artist do you uh, know yeah, he, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fant- no, i mean
1: he did he's done a couple of books lately too that I, I haven't read them i just looked at them online but he is so good
0: oh my gosh yeah yeah, yeah. No, Beautiful it's, amazing. Stuff. it's amazing and, and it, i think what i find so refreshing about you know so much like i'm looking at nicholas de Cresci's work now mm-hmm online and it is extraordinary. The, the illustration is just I mean, this is really virtuoso illustration. It's amazing.
1: It's he's awesome. a painter as well. He had a show uh, last was in the spring in New York City. I popped by to see it. It was good.
0: Yeah, yeah, he's very
1: good. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's Bluch too, of course. Um, but I think his Peplum came out in English. B, ah, I'll I'll send them all to you, but B-L-U-T-C-H. He is the, an absolute master with a brush. I mean, I can't look at his work. It makes me cry. <laughs> and it is not in any, you know, old-fashioned feathering way or anything. He uses it so painterly. He is, yeah, fuck. Those friends so, are good, some of them. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so do you, um, I mean, do you do cons or you? Or do you head over to Europe to do any no. public? No, no,
1: no. no. No, oh, not really. I mean, maybe I should, but the, the problem is Angoulême, the big French one, Yes, mm-hmm. is in January or early February. I don't know why I should go to the south of France at that time of year. <laughs> 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 but also, I generally, I'm not too fond of cons. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I, I like meeting uh, the audience. It's great. I, I love meeting my colleagues. It's great. But the din of noise and just, I don't know. It's work somehow, I think. Also, they are as a salesperson. And yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a salesperson either. But I'd rather stay home and either play a board game with my kids or <laughs> have a drink of wine with my wife or watch a movie or even draw. But sure. I don't really. I mean, I know a lot of colleagues, they, they love going to concerts and they think it's great. I think it's fine. I don't mind it. I don't seek it out. Let me put it that way.
0: Yeah, 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 it's interesting. Um, I, I kind of have an ambivalent relationship with cons too. I, I don't quite know. It's kind of the same. I always, I always feel. I don't know. What's the word? I'm always uncomfortable in the same way that I'm uncomfortable at parties.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I'm not uncomfortable at parties. I, yeah, no, I, I love parties. Me. And you're not they, You're not selling anything there. If, yeah. Maybe if you could get drunk and just talk to people at a con. But you have to bring <laughs> your books and you have to be polite. And,
2: yeah.
1: I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. And it's nice to you know meet people who really like your work. I, that's, of course, that's always nice. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with it. And I don't want to diss cons at all. I'm just, I don't know. Yeah, I'm okay with them. I, I think if you have something you want to sell, maybe it's a little more interesting. But I, I mean, for for the last ten years, the rights of all my books have been handled by publishers or agents, right? So I don't really have any reason to be there except maybe sell a couple of books and sell a couple of drawings and then talk to people. I mean, I. And in the NCS, National Cartoonist Society, they have usually have a booth at the uh, New York Comic Con and at uh, right. MoCA. And I go sometimes and I love to talk to the colleagues. I always do. They're great. Yeah.
0: Oh, well, that's what I love about the show is having the opportunity to talk. to you. Yeah.
1: yeah. Talk, that, talk I to. mean, I love that. But uh, the other part, they're sitting in the booth and all that. I yeah. don't really need it.
0: Yeah. So what are you working on uh, now? You said the Dostoevsky book comes out in the fall.
1: Yeah, I finished that a couple of months ago. Right now I'm writing, but I'm also waiting on final word on two projects with two writers. Uh, uh-huh. One of them, I, but I, I, can't, I don't want to talk about them. It's not because they're secret, but it's because until they're actually happening, they're extremely vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So so if I tell you for 10 minutes about the next project I'm involved in and then I can kind of feel the chips. Thanks. Okay, why is he bothering with that shit? That could really ruin the whole process. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's why I never talk about what I'm doing until it's at a critical mass where I have to finish it.
0: Yeah, I I understand that. I have the same kind of unease about talking about something that that is an upcoming project or a project that I'm looking forward to doing. It's always kind of, it's like talking about a baby before it's born, you know. Yeah, Yeah. you
1: You don't want to jinx it.
0: You don't want (laughs) to jinx it, you know, in the first (laughs) trimester, you know.
1: But it's also because I, I usually don't talk about things until they're under contract, because I I used to do that when I was young. Oh, yeah, I'm planning to do this. I'm planning to do that. And then it's, you know, if it doesn't happen, then you've said that it's going to happen and it doesn't. And you just look like a fool, I think. Yeah, too often. So once they're under contract, I'll be more than happy to talk about it. But right now I have two projects out in France with two different writers. And one of them has supposedly been green-lighted, but I haven't seen a contract yet. Okay. And the other one, they're going to meet at the end of the month and make a decision. Excellent. If they Excellent. both go through, I am screwed, but i <laughs> cross that bridge when I get to it. Yeah.
0: So so do you get, like, um, when you're working on a, on a graphic novel for yeah. these publishers, do you receive an advance or do you receive payment yeah. when the book is done? It's in the contract. How well do these sell in, in France and throughout Europe?
1: That's like here. You know, they go anywhere from 500 copies to 100,000.
0: Wow, that's great.
1: So it depends a lot on the titles, uh, and publishers too. I mean, you know, it's like here the big publishers, like you say, you go into a bookstore uh, in upstate New York. The big publishers can get their books in there, right? They have the distribution muscle. Yep. And the small ones don't. Yeah. It's the it's the same with comics. It's the same with comics in France. So there's a lot of interesting small publishers, mm-hmm. but they don't really have the muscle. Yeah, their, the, you know the books out in all the snacks. This is the big bookstore chain in France. So it depends. It really depends. T.T.E.F., which was a, a kind of farting and farting strip from about 10, 15 years ago, they sold half a million every time it came out. Wow, amazing. Yeah. 46 amazing. pages of uh, farting humor.
0: Of fart jokes.
1: <laughs> yeah. But man, okay. and actually he took uh, that cartoonist, he, um, he took that money, and now he's doing rather interesting graphic novels.
0: Uh, well, you know, d- yeah. do each his own, right? Find your path. Exactly.
1: No, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I respect that. No problem there.
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely do too. Actually,
1: any day I'll respect 500,000 500, soul copies. <laughs> <things>.
0: <laughs> so what's been your most popular book so far? I
1: think, well, it depends on, I think the one that was most successful was that one, Prince that one. I mean, okay. It came out in 10 languages, Korean and Greek and languages have never been published in before and and well, got a good deal of buzz too in Europe. That's great. And, and some, So yeah. so, so, you, so that was, you know, I, I basically because I did that, uh, I got to do the next four books I did. They, so, they, that was basically a calling card to sign the contracts for the next four books and probably the next two as well, I would think, if they go through. I mean, I, I can kind of run on the slipstream of that or I have at least for a while, eight a great- years now
0: yeah it's it's so cool. I mean, it's really wonderful to be able to you know focus in on the graphic novel work and and feel though as though you've got some stability there and you know what you're doing and you're moving forward with it. and each book sounds like an adventure of a kind, you know, they that, are. You they know? Are.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't take all the projects I get offered, but mm-hmm. but definitely, I mean, I have to kind there has to be something in there that turns me on. Yeah, I mean, I was very interested in that David Crook project because it was about an immigrant and I'm an immigrant. Right. There was there was really a connection there. I'm, I'm married to a Korean. He was in China. I know they're not the same and all that. But, you know, there was that Asian cultural thing um, that he <laughs> experienced and that I experienced by having Korean in-laws and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, sure. That, that was interesting to me. Tolstoy and Dostoevsky is just old love, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And then, again, I really think Chantal writes great scripts. I love working with her.
0: Oh, so great to have that. And uh, her full name again?
1: Yeah, Chantal, as in, I guess we have that here too, right, Chantal? Yeah. Uh, she, she's Belgian, but she has a Flemish-Dutch last name, Fan. V-A-N. V-A-N. Mm-hmm. V-A-N. That yeah. also means where you're from. And then D-E-N, Fan, then, but they're two different words
0: okay, van den, okay,
1: yeah, van den and then Heuvel, h e u v e l h e u v e
0: l okay, very good. I'll look her up. Yeah. that's um you it's great to be working with a writer you feel simpatico with,
1: and uh, yeah, I crazy no, that make I, it's impossible not to, i think, yeah, I, especially yeah. with these graphic novel projects, unless there's an you know insane amount of money, and it's then maybe you can swallow it, but mm-hmm. no, and there's the good ones they uh, of course, they, they can write. They write good scripts, but they well, also to a certain extent leave you alone. If, if I, I can only work like this, let me put it that way. I'm sure other people could work differently. I can only work with it this way. I get the script and I get to tell the story right the same way if I was a movie director, so yeah. I decide the pacing, I decide the layouts and I decide how it's drawn. Now, if some of it doesn't work. I'm happy with with criticism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I don't want to be just the extension of the writer. Yeah. Mean, this is not theater. If if the I, I I had a project with a French writer and I could just feel right away that he wanted it in a he basically wanted me to draw the things that he couldn't draw himself. But if he yeah. could have drawn it himself, he would have. And that would just be death for me. I mean it's it's artistic death for me. There's just there's not that space to to create, to explore, to make decisions, because that's what's really nice about cartooning too. I think that you're constantly making decisions, right?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: That's, that's what, yeah. That is what is interested in interesting. I think in any job, really. That's mm-hmm. why it's it's hell to to do something where you just do the same all the time, and it doesn't even matter if you get better at it.
0: Right, and and in comics, there's an intellectual aspect to you know. I mean, when you're painting, it's a different experience. You know, you are making thousands of decisions but it's a very different kind of physical emotional experience psychological experience comics there's a puzzle aspect an intellectual analytical aspect to it that's intriguing in and of itself that goes hand in hand with you know the physical and the expressive qualities and as a as a storyteller a visual storyteller you've got to make all of these decisions in terms Mm. of pacing and flow And, and that's absolutely integral to the visual aspects of the story right it's
1: no to the story to the story too i think i mean i I think if it's first of all if it's not drawn it doesn't exist but also makes a big difference how it's drawn yeah absolutely i I mean you could have the same story drawn by two different people and they're going to be two different pieces of art
0: oh my gosh yeah well yeah (laughs)
1: so so yeah um
0: i mean you look at a comic book drawn by you know say the you took a fantastic four script and you had it drawn one's drawn by jack kirby and the other is drawn by you know rich Tardy. buckler or something you know
1: no Tardy, uh, i think that would be good the yeah okay. Tardy, the french cartoonist he would be interesting with a fantastic four, i think
0: yeah yeah absolutely
1: sure no no i'm just saying i mean sometimes it just fits right for instance something like corto maltese mm-hmm. is um i mean pratt was not very good at drawing action scenes but he writes them into his stories anyway uh-huh. And they come across as awkward and, but Interesting. it also adds something to the whole universe and the story that they are a bit inept. I don't know if that was what made it a, an intellectual favorite by, <laughs> amongst <laughs> people in in Europe, but it does something. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, if Peanuts had been drawn by yeah. somebody with a more detailed line or by Kirby for that matter, yeah, it would not, it, I don't know if it would have worked, but it would definitely be a very very different artwork oh a different piece of in the world right
0: sure absolutely i mean you you change one thing and it's is exactly that the comics are the summation of the whole it's the it's not you know and certainly the artwork is a voice it is the it is the voice really you know the words come through the artwork they're part of the visual language and you know that it, it's like why the text is important it's why the the typography is important it's because it's part of that voice you know part of that visual sure. voice so but, changing that visual it, voice would
1: you know there's a ping pong too i mean you, you you can't just expect the writer to be perfectly happy with everything either i think i mean the, you know they had a meaning and an intention with what they wrote as well
0: of course and,
1: you know, of course yeah i mean you have to have. to and they open to that naturally.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's got to be difficult for a writer, particularly a writer who has a visual sense, somebody who's who th- thinks in terms of pictures as they're writing, you know. I mean, that, that's got to be a kind of difficult thing to give it over. You have to be willing to give it over and have that, you know, willingness to collaborate, really.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I have... Um... I have an editor that I worked with for many years, uh, Pierre Sander here in Copenhagen. And he in, he, he write, mostly writes, but he can draw himself too. And he says that that you should not write comics if you can't draw. If you don't have that um, visual sensibility. Because what happens very often, for instance, is if you take somebody who writes prose for a living and mm-hmm. ask them to write a comic, it's very difficult for them. Because they yeah. they write in long strings of words all the time.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And comics are just pictures. It, and I mean, I, I've even I've worked with an editor who didn't really seem to have a visual sense of things. Sure, He just described them. And then he had to kind of wait to see what the visual was until you came up with it. Yeah, it yeah. was a lot of those art directors and advertising, too, I remember. And I mean, and that's perfectly fine. But but if you um, I mean, I've written scripts for other artists, too. And I think it is when you sit down and write the script, it is helpful. If you know, if you have a visual sense, let me put it that way.
0: Well, you know, and I guess a lot of people say that's one of the reasons, you know, somebody like Alan Moore is as successful as he is, is because, we, and as good as he is, is because he's got this visual sense that he was a yeah. cartoonist first. And and so he can visualize and communicate to his collaborator, you know, what he w- would like to see within it, you know. Um, yeah. and And I think you're absolutely right, because somebody who doesn't have that sense, well you know, they're going to be frustrated.
1: Um, no, th- I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've experienced it. Suddenly a person is doing three things in one frame. Yeah. I mean, that's just, just the common mistake, right. And, and such yeah. a cliche, but anyway, it happens.
0: Yeah, sure.
1: Because I it's, mean, it's, it's not a problem. You just make three frames, but you know, it never happened in the scripts I wrote, I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's one of the tricks, I think, in collaboration in comics is is being able to accept, you know, uh, the interpretation uh, for a writer anyway, to accept the interpretation the artist is going to bring. Yeah. Um, you know, and in that sense, I mean, probably... I mean, a lot of artists complain about it, but in, the, in some sense, the best collaborator as a writer goes is probably Stan Lee in that sense. When you think about how he just gave it over to his artists, of course, a lot of exploitation was, was a result, but also a lot of good stuff came out of that. True, sure. um, You know, his ability to say, OK, you, you guys tell the story, you know, and I'll go from there. And, I, I, uh, I
1: don't think there's any method that you could say that's the best. Yeah, I think it's individual. Actually, if you have a writer and an artist or an artist team or whatever, if you have a colorist, it basically comes down to how they prefer to work and how they figure out how to work with each other, and that's it. And and there's a ten thousand different ways of doing it. I think.
0: Sure. How they communicate with one another is really what. Yeah.
1: How much they can accept from the others, how much. Big, you know it's so it's it's like a dance or a marriage yeah. or whatever although uh, all cl- a short one but still um yeah. you I gotta mean, click a, yeah you gotta click and uh, and yeah. i mean I, I i don't i've never really worked with writers that i didn't click with
0: mm-hmm. i, I yeah. don't
1: know if i can right
0: yeah it would be painful kind of you know to do that and i think
1: it's, no it just becomes a job that's the problem yeah, you're the basically job. executing it Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it can be done for an obscene amount of money, as always. But um, yeah, but artistically, it's uh, frustrating and dissatisfactory.
0: Are you a control freak when it comes to your your work? No, no. You just sort of you can you can accept, you know, the the interpretation and the suggestions of an editor or a writer.
1: Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, it's the same thing. I can't work with editors I don't respect. I mean yeah. I can for money but but the ones you respect <laughs> like the guy the Alain David who sits over in Paris that I work with on these Dostoevsky and Tolstoy books he is yeah. great oh that's great I love working with him he mm-hmm. he um he doesn't interfere a lot and every time he has a suggestion he's right oh. that's what you need <laughs> man he is great mm-hmm. um he's just a real he's a real pro he, you know good editors understand that they're not writing the the story right they're not doing the book they're just helping to make the book the best they it can be i mean i've, I've worked with some of the i've had a couple of those editors they, it's a joy
0: yeah and they've got to love comics you know they've
1: got to be yeah, com- i assume so but if they didn't they probably wouldn't be in this business What are you <laughs> <laughs> there's certainly other options in the world
0: yeah <laughs> Well, I hope they find it, those who don't. Anyway.
1: No, I'm not a control freak at all. Do you, you remember Pooh? Poo, yeah. Alex and uh, Kevin, they had a gallery out in uh, Yes, in Brooklyn. Yes. And I was in a show there, and I had a, an abstract comic piece. And they had hung it upside down. <laughs> I thought it was great. Oh, um, cool. I thought it was... Actually, Alex said... I realized, because they looked at, I think, if the book it was in, that we had hung it upside down, and I'm glad I caught it. But I said, you don't need to worry about that. Yeah, I think it was fine <laughs> if it was upside down. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you make a book, right? Yeah. And it doesn't live until somebody reads it. That's true. And I, I, I try to manipulate them into getting a certain experience out of it, but I have no control over that. No. And, and I mean, I've read reviews. I've got feedback from people who took something away from my book that i never put in i think uh-huh. or maybe i put it in and they discovered it but i certainly didn't discover it so well no. i mean yeah. what are you gonna do? you can't be a control freak and like i said one of my books were published in korean right i cannot proofread the translation
0: so you have no idea what it says <laughs> i have
1: no maybe it's a pornographic book in korean <laughs> uh, who knows <laughs> no i'm just saying it's I think it's also because what I really enjoy is making the things right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I enjoy doing it. Mm-hmm. That's why I do it. The, so, so I finish a book now comes out next January. I have my head is in a very different place than I'm working on a new project, maybe two and I'm I'm over, over this yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. So, so sure it comes out. I mean, especially if it comes in different editions or in different languages. Right. Some of the print jobs are better than others. Some of mm-hmm. the graphic design is better mm-hmm. than others. Mm-hmm. i my philosophy is you have you just have to let it go. It's like kids. You have to let it go and then they the book must make its way.
2: Uh-huh.
1: and I'm That's done true. with it. I don't want it massacred, of course. i can, I give a lot of leeway. I mean, I work with good graphic designers too. They have really good ideas. I listen to what they say.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, well,
1: know, uh, yeah, it's it's a little bit like um if you if you sell your graphic novel to be made into a movie yeah. then you should forget about it i think you should not try to force don't the people who make the movie to make your graphic novel on the screen yeah you must you must mm-hmm. trust that they're competent and if you don't trust they're competent then don't sell your book to them right and exactly. that's how i feel about my books too i trust the people that i work with are competent and they seem to me to really be so I listen to what they say and and I often go with their decisions. Have you ever met anybody who the first thing they asked you was, can you please micromanage me? <laughs> <I never have. laughs> oh, never.
0: No, but I've met bosses I think, who, who insist in oversight, you know, like that.
1: No, no, true. And, and it's a balance, too, of course, like everything else. I think it was Christopher Walken who said the most important part of um, of making a movie is casting.
0: Yeah. Well, because yeah, you find yeah. the
1: right actor. Well, of course, there's the whole prep, the script and all that. But once you get to shooting the movie, okay. the casting has to be right. And once you yeah. find the right actor, let them do what they do.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely.
1: And, and then I think there's a lot to that, actually. I mean, you got to, sure. like you said, you got to trust them, whatever it is in art.
0: Mm-hmm. Find
1: the right person or the one you think is the right person.
0: Yes, and exactly. And, uh, yeah. Because I've seen a lot of movies fail because of bad casting. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I don't well,
2: know. Movies yeah. are
1: interesting. Some of them are so bad you wonder why they made these decisions. How, but, how
0: did, yeah,
1: uh, the movie business is weird. There's too much money in there and there's too many budgetary constraints. Yeah. And, uh, no, it's a good thing.
0: You know, the making of a good movie is a small miracle, you know, because it's probably. <laughs> And when you uh, think about those directors who make films and, and actors who work together and have produced a body of work that's consistent, that's even extraordinary. It's like, how does that even happen in that world? It's not possible
1: to think. Yeah. Of. I mean there is you know, there is that intangible thing, talent. Some people yeah. just
0: have it. Yep. Yeah. And chemistry and all of that.
1: Yeah, but well, that's have, a talent as well.
0: Yeah, it is. Henrik, I think, uh, you know, we've covered a lot of ground and I-, I can hear things are happening out in the household that I've probably got to tend to. So um, it's been really just so wonderful yeah, nice. to you.
1: It yeah. was really nice. Anyway, Jeff, just uh, edit this any way you want,
0: okay? Okay, I will. <laughs> thanks thanks for not being a control freak.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm not good at it.
0: <laughs> yeah. But no, Henrik, it's been yeah. a joy. It's really been a joy, and and uh, I hope we yeah, get to fuck.
1: It was nice. We, gotta, we have to uh, do this over some beers one day. That was too far future.
0: Yep. If I ever find my way to New York, I, I will. we will definitely do that. It would be wonderful. Great. Right. Take care. All right, man, take care. Thank you again.
1: No big deal. I enjoyed it. Tremendous <laughs> <speech>. <laughs> bye, bye for bye. now.
0: Well, that was a lot of fun. It was really nice to catch up with Henrik after all of these years, although we haven't been entirely out of touch because of Instagram and whatnot. But, uh, again, uh, great to hear about what he's doing. Great to talk about European comics, to talk about life in general, and all of those things. And I hope you will check out uh, some of the names that Henrik mentioned. First of all, I want you to check out Henrik's work. Again, on the Instagram feed, uh, Henrik Kimrare. okay, H-E-N. R-I-K-K-I-M-R-E-H-R. It is in the notes. Check that out. Okay, you won't be disappointed. It's great stuff. His books are available on Amazon. You can find David Crook there. You can find uh, Gavrilo Princep there. You can find uh, his work, Tribeca Sunset and Tuesday, about 9-11. Those two books are there also. So you might look up Henrik Rare on Amazon. Among the names mentioned, uh, Nicholas de Cresci. His work uh, is available through Humanoids. And if you go to Humanoids.com, you can find Nicholas de Cresci's work. So uh, I feel remiss in forgetting about Humanoids, but Humanoids is bringing lots of European work to the American market. Uh, They have... um, uh, Mobius is, of course, also represented by... By humanoids, so look for that. Uh, other names mentioned: Barrel of Monkeys by um, Rupert and Mullo uh, is available on Amazon, so you can find that there uh, in an English translation. Uh, and Bastien Vives uh, or Vives—I'm uh, not sure how to pronounce it—Bastien Vives, B-A-S-T-I-E-N-V-I-V-E-S. Look for his work as well. I'm I'm less familiar with his work, uh, but I did look him up online, and uh, his work has appeared in the United States also. Just I'm I'm out of the loop, so I'm not all that well aware of it. Uh, anyway, he's got his own Wikipedia page, so you can find out more about him there. And uh, the writer that uh, Henrik speaks so highly of, Chantel Vanden Heuvel. Uh, I know I'm not pronouncing it correctly. Chantel Vanden Heuvel. H E U-V-E-L. Okay, so there's some names to check out there, and uh, there's more to look at at Humanoids and at MBM uh, Publishing also. Uh, You can find more, more European work there. And, of course, if we're talking about Euro- European comics, how can I forget Heavy Metal? Heavy Metal's been bringing great European cartoonists to the United States, the American market, for over 40 years, right? So uh, that's always a great resource, whether it's new new publications from Heavy Metal or whether you're, you're scanning eBay for those old issues. Uh, any, any one of those, you're going to find some great, great comics from Europe. Well, I think that'll do it for now. Uh, I'm I'm working already on my next project and that is called the Have a Banana Research Project and it, well I'll tell you more about it as time goes on there will be a Kickstarter for that sometime in the coming year uh, it will uh, encompass lots of things uh, lots of different things it's a different kind of book and I'm excited about it I hope to bring some new people along the way real soon and uh, although I don't know exactly who's up next Hopefully, it won't be too long away. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Greenscreen Comic. That's at Greenscreen Comic. That's one word. G R E E N S R. Wait a minute. G. How do you spell green? G R E E N screen. S C R E E N comic. C O M I C. This is what happens to you when you get old. Greenscreen Comic. One word at Greenscreen Comic. I'm on Instagram. You'll find out all about my my things, my stuff, my work there. So look for me. Uh, I'll be looking for you. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Thanks for being here. Uh, I know the summer is winding down wherever you are. I hope you're enjoying those these last sweet days of summer. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening.